Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? I can take it. And welcome back to the 47th episode of the Monster Movie Stomp Down. Of course, you got Sludge here, my co-host to the right of me, left of me. Is Mark. My brother in Texas. Ruben. And then we have a very special guest that we have promoted on this episode. Uh, none other than the one and only August Ragone. August, say hello. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Thanks for uh, inviting me to the show. Man, super excited about you being here. I mean, we've talked about you amongst the three of us and and you in the past. And, you know, like, remember the, I think it was, it actually may have been last, not this year, but I think it was last year on Godzilla's birthday, me and you had somehow gotten into a discussion on Facebook. And uh, I think we'd started messaging each other on Messenger. And uh, and I was flipping out. I was like, I told Ruben and Mark both, I'm like, dude, I'm talking to August Ragone. Like, you know, this is like, if you're a science kid, you're talking to Bill Nye the Science Guy or something, yeah. you know? I'm oh, like, yeah. this is so cool. And uh, I told him I made my day. And then this year for Godzilla's birthday, because uh, August, in, in case you don't know, uh, I'm 35 years old, and I have never worked a November 3rd a day in my life. I have taken right. that day off every year since I started working at the age of 15 and just do Godzilla movies and video games and check out my collection and just be just nerd out all the way. And so this year for his birthday. Yeah, this year was uh, Sludge Needs Off for Election Day. It's November the 3rd. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. nope, he needs off. It's Godzilla's birthday. <laughs> exactly. People <laughs> were like, really? I'm like, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So so for this year, um, it, it was cool because, I mean, I not only what did I, of course, get to talk to August again uh, this year, but I got to talk briefly with Matt Frank. And so this Godzilla birthday was like the greatest of all time for me. I'm like, dude, like I've got the monster movie guru and then the, the greatest monster movie artist, you know, <laughs> talking to me at one time and just through discussion. Cause I think you were talking to somebody about an Ultraman video or movie. Um, and you had tagged, uh, cause my first name's Tristan, another guy in the same group that we're in, whose name happened uh, to be Tristan. And you right, messaged right. me about it. And that's when we started talking. And I just brought up, you know, the show and and you seeing if you'd come on and you were so gracious to be like absolutely man and that just floored me <laughs> and i was like what really like this is awesome i had some it's friends really, yeah. i'm sorry no i'm just saying yeah just sorry <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um i had some friends are like dude how did you get august to come on i'm like i, I just asked <laughs> well, i didn't yeah. think it'd be that easy yeah. you know um, yeah you know it's like it was kind of funny because there's been other there's a lot of a lot of different podcasts on on this subject mm -hmm. uh, in general are focused on Godzilla and Kaiju. And, uh, you know, sometimes I go, man, why doesn't anybody invite me? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know and it's, then I hear that people are going like, I'd never thought he would accept if we asked him. So we just never asked. <laughs> like, just ask. <laughs> Everybody just ask. I'll do whatever you, I will do. I will do a, you know, I'll do a tire store. Open it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, invite me. So glad that you accepted the invitation, and uh, uh, we got a really cool episode uh, for today. But before we get started, August, kind of give us a. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I I know a, a bit about you uh, as far as your history in this genre, and uh, not just the kaiju genre, but the tokusatsu genre in general. But kind of give us a rundown of things that you've you've done, or or what really got you into this. You know, what right. made August Ragon August Ragon. Well, you know, most people, uh, you know, mostly boys, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, like three or four years old, if you happen to come across dinosaurs or in any way, shape or form, whether it's in school or in movies or whatever, you become kind of fascinated with that. And then that kind of extends to, you know, the Godzilla type monsters and, and Kaiju and all that. So, you know, that's sort of the basic, the, the boring, basic foundation. And then, uh, you know, you just start Either some people watch it casually until you know they they discover they discover uh, uh, other things when they get older. Girls uh, or you know yeah. cars, <laughs> yeah, whatever whatever it happens to be, and then yeah. uh, they grow out of it. And I just kept into it. What I happened to me is I, I got fascinated more with uh, you know because there's a lot of fans that you can look at today. I mean everybody developed sort of the same way. You could look at fans today, younger fans, and see that. Uh, you know, that they become obsessed with the world within the world and will, yeah. you know, argue about monsters' powers and, and you know, who has the greater strength and, you know, which monster's tail is more powerful, <laughs> stuff like that, you oh, know. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't so much interested in that. I was kind of interested in data, like, you know, that peripheral data of, like, you know, Godzilla is 50 meters tall and weighs 20,000 tons. Uh, metric tons and then but i was more fascinated by who are the people who make this stuff you know i want to know more about how this stuff was made who came up with this stuff and i think the first time was when i was i don't know maybe i was like nine eight or nine or ten years old within i'm gonna have to pinpoint that one day but i got the sunday paper uh, and the Sunday paper would have, again, like a TV guide would have like the TV yep. log. Yep. And there was a listing because then I'd go through and look for the monster movies that were coming up this week. And then there was Attack of the Mushroom People, Great. Japanese, 1963. And I went, oh, oh, another Japanese horror, monster film. I have to see this. And then it said, you know, it says a little thing like castaways get lost on a desert island, blah, blah, blah. But then it has a couple of the actors' names, you know, usually misspelled. And and then it said, special effects by A.G. Subaraya. And I went, who is that? Wait, that is the person who made the special effects. That kind of opened up that door. That was a name drop that I became focused on. And then uh, there was Famous Monsters magazine around that time when I was a kid. And they had reprinted an article from the 60s because, you know, Famous Monsters started in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is like uh, the early 70s. And uh, I think it was issue one. No, I can't. Even, I'm not going to even guess what issue it is right now. But it was before. One, it was like in the 110s. So it's like issue 110 to 11 or 12. Um, and they reprinted this article about A.G. Subaraya, the guy who did all the special effects for the Godzilla films. And I just read that article over and over and over again. And it had these great behind the scenes photos from 
the Mysterians and King Kong versus Godzilla and Mothra primarily. Um, they did a big splash, you know, splash page with one of the images. And I just kept reading that article was only like four or five pages long uh, or something like that. And I just kept rereading and just staring at those photos, you know, over and over again. And I became mostly fascinated with that. There was a fanzine, you know, uh, I don't know. Does anybody still remember what a fanzine is out there? Yeah. The yeah. independent uh, magazines that were printed by fans, usually right. stock paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And you used to do, you know, you used to go to the copy store and go to copy mat or whatever and get copies made or some will go even far back as mimeograph machines where you had to hand crank them. But uh, fans would put together their own magazines to exchange information. There was one on in the States published out of uh, Toledo, Ohio called the Japanese fantasy film ship film journal, which that's my mentor. American mentor is uh, Craig Shoemaker, the publisher of that zine. He was interested also in how these films were made and who were the people that were behind the scenes. Uh, he started that in 1968. So I found that zine too, and that kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, and then I would write my local horror host and uh, go get these movies. And uh, <laughs> these are the movies you should be showing on Creature Features type of a thing. And then um, he made a personal appearance in 1976 at a theater and uh, I just handed him this package because he goes, if anybody comes across any information on new movies coming out, especially Godzilla movies, because Godzilla movies were really popular uh, in the early 70s here in the States, uh, then, uh, you know, forward that to the station. So I put together this whole envelope, manila envelope full of magazine clippings and stuff I had handwritten out, information I compiled, and I handed it to him. And I said, you know, I just gave it to him. It was crazy. You know, it's crazy. There were like 400 kids. There are 400 kids wanting to shake his hand. And I just went, here, there's some information on new Godzilla movies coming. And uh, a few weeks later, you know, it's not that same story. And I've told this before where, you know, the, the kid has the hero and the hero lets him down. And then oh. there's the redemption later. <laughs> you know, I didn't have that. I didn't hear from him for weeks and weeks. And I didn't expect him to contact me right away. And my thinking in my head was, he's a busy man. That man's on TV. <laughs> so I was kind of a little grounded, a little grounded for what I was into. Uh, but uh, uh, one day I came home from school a few months later, after I gave him the package, maybe three months later down the road. And uh, my mom says, you have a call from Bob Wilkins, who was the host of Creature Features. And after I was done doing, you know, flip-flops and doing back springs <laughs> off the wall, yeah. you know, I called him and he said, hey, I got your package, you know, because I also wrote in the package, send this all back when you're finished with it, please, you know. <laughs> this is my stuff. And my, I included my phone number and my address in case he wanted more information. Now, this show was hugely rated. Bob Wilkins was like a hero to a lot of television viewers uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he usually had a, a an audience uh, of about a million people turning into his show every Saturday night. So he was a big, 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 big deal, and created another monster explosion because you know we had monster movies in theaters and horror films, and we had uh, we had creature features on TV, and other stations had been running 
monster movies and and looking at talking at talking with a lot of other monster kids around the country grew up in that period you know they always had like well we had creature double feature or we had you know this show or we had that show and that was like the one show that maybe had monster movies every week or maybe there was a you know a saturday afternoon show too but i look back and realize that we had an incredible amount of monsters and opportunities to see monster movies and horror films in the San Francisco Bay Area it was insane. There would be theaters in town. San Francisco is only seven by seven miles, surrounded three sides by water, right? And we would have we had more movie theaters in this town than, than you know than any other place I knew that small. I had four movie theaters in my neighborhood, and I oh, grew up wow. in a and I grew up in a residential neighborhood, not a downtown area. But uh, it wasn't far from our shopping area, which was San, at the time when I was a little kid, more more than and more so than before I came around. It was San Francisco's Miracle Mile shopping district. Mm. But we had on one block, we had two movie theaters that were like 400 feet away from each other, and then another one across the street. And so that was just on one block. Wow. <laughs> so. We had all these movie theaters. We had all this stuff going on, and uh, and and Bob Wilkins became the king of this. So Bob Wilkins, uh, uh, I call. So I get up the gumption to call Bob Wilkins, and uh, he goes, "I got your package. Thank you very much. You certainly know a lot about Godzilla. Uh, just want to let you know that a new Godzilla movie is going to be opening up uh, in a few weeks in theaters called Godzilla versus Megalon." Would you like to come on the show and talk about Godzilla? Oh, oh wow. <laughs> so I would said yes. And I went on the show and I was scared. <laughs> I was so scared. I was I was shaking. I had the whole the whole time I had the nervous knee, the nervous leg, the bouncy yeah. leg. Oh yeah. Yeah. But we did the show. I uh because we had a Japan town in San Francisco, I had a lot of stuff to bring on the show to visually show, not just like everybody else had the same copy of famous monsters of Filmland or something like that. Right. And, uh, and I had, uh, some of the Japanese Godzilla toys and I brought those on the show and, uh, we did this great interview and, uh, um, you know, I'm just a kid, but I did good enough that, uh, he invited me back. And, uh, then I became a regular on his show. Uh, and then he did a semi-regular and then I did a, uh, he started doing a kid show called Captain Cosmic that was Monday through Friday in the afternoon. And the whole reason he wanted to do that was to show things like Ultraman and Spectre Man and the Space Giants, all these Japanese uh, superhero shows and monster shows. And uh, that's when I started, he really started leaning on me. Uh, and uh, like I recommended shows for him to buy. <laughs> you know, he's like, what, what else is... What else is out there? What else is out there, man? You're the expert. Tell me, you know, and I would, I wrote a list of stuff for him and uh, he got most of those shows. I mean, and, uh, and he really thanked me because one of the shows I recommended, you know, I just wrote this list because I was such a, I was such a weirdo kid that I would pick up issues of variety magazine. Right. And you know, why is this, you know, teenager, this pre-adolescent, you know, this is adolescent preteen. You know, why why is he buying variety? Why is he going to the newsstand? What is he? What is he like a some genius filmmaker kid or what? <laughs> I was just like looking for the ads with the Japanese monsters. 
because they would cover the whole, you know, international uh, uh, film business. So companies like Toho or Subaraya Productions, who produces the Ultraman shows, would run full page ads in Variety. So it was another way I might see some graphic that, oh man, I gotta buy this issue for this full page ad, you know. And uh, they would go, you know, and they had, and they also, there was also information on stuff that was coming out. And uh, Japanese, you know, the Japanese film scene uh, was also covered in, in Variety. And uh, so I don't know what the whole point of me bringing up Variety was about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Having access to fresh information. Oh, right, right. So, you know, you had all this stuff in there. And, uh, and so I drew from a lot of different places, but you know, um, so Bob Wilkins was like, so there'd be ads for like what shows are available, who were the companies that that had the shows. And I was also the, the nerdy kid that when I'd watch, when I grew up watching shows like Ultraman or whatever, you know, I would pay attention to the credits. Like I wouldn't just turn it off or run out to go play ball. I would wait till the credits were over or whatever. And I went, okay, Johnny Sucka when his flying robot was released by American International Television, okay. And I would make mental notes of all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I would write this list. I wrote this list for Bob Wilkins that said, like, Ultraman is available through United Artists Television. Johnny Sacco and his flying robot is available through American International Television. And then later, Bob thanked me about, uh, about Johnny Sacco because uh, back then, the standard, if you were going to do a contract for a syndicated show, like let's say you wanted Star Trek on your channel or Ultraman, it was generally a standard five-year contract, right? So you could have the rights to show this TV show for five years, and then you know you'd have to send it back um, or renew your contract. So Bob Wilkins was always looking for because um, he had contacted some Japanese companies and he was looking for shows that would work within the budget of his show. Uh, which wasn't necessarily a low-budget show, but I mean, some of these Japanese companies were going, yeah, we have that show. We can give it to you for $10,000 an episode, like Ultra 7. He contacted Subaraya Productions to get Ultra 7. That's the, the show that followed the original Ultraman. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, we want $10,000 an episode. And he went, nobody can afford that. You know, nobody... And that was an insanely high price in, you know, the United States at the time uh, for any kind of second run show. It's a show from the 60s, you know. But anyway, so he gets Johnny Sacco and his flying robot and he took me aside one day at the station and he goes, hey, I just want to let you know that I want to thank you. Thank you so much for Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. I got a five year option on it for twenty five hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Uh -huh which was there was 26 episodes of that show so he only had to pay a hundred dollars for each episode basically a hundred and you know three dollars let's do the division but he only had to pay that for five years he got that show for nothing that was dirt wow. cheap in those days yeah. so you know uh you know that's i got my start working with him going on tv gave me confidence to talk about this stuff in front of people and uh bob really kind of tried to promote me as this expert you know, and he was the first person to call me an expert on the air with a little, you know, your name, under, uh, you know, uh, superimposed when you're on TV. Oh. They do the the, the, uh, the chroma key. Uh, I forgot what they call it now. They give you the little plug of who you are and what you are. Mm. 
And, uh, and, uh, so that kind of got me started on that. And I was started writing for fanzines and moved to Japan, met a lot of people I wanted to, who made these films. Um, not everybody, obviously, but, you know, I was kind of a, you know, again, you know, kind of like, I'm afraid to bug all these people, you know, but I made connections and met through people through, through those connections and started learning more and more and more about, uh, how these movies and, and TV shows were made and um, teaching myself Japanese so I could, I'm buying all these Japanese books, I might as well know what they say, <laughs> yeah. uh, and getting, informa getting information that way. And oh, you know, it's, thanks for inviting me to the show, I've taken up all the time telling, telling the story oh, no. myself, yeah. of myself. I, I, that I, I, was gonna be one of my questions on how you got started, I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that was part yeah, of this awesome get started. Oh, yeah. That's an awesome story. Yeah, thanks. So, and, you know, and it's very relatable. Because, uh, I mean, your story, except for the part going on TV and everything, it, it was, it's the same. It's like, we had no access to that stuff back right. then. Uh, you know, you had to dig around. My son always asked me, how do you find out about this? I said, reading magazines. That was the way we found out back then. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, even you know, before, that. even before magazines like G-Fan came out, yeah. you know, it's like I did a magazine called Markalite. And that that could be a whole episode unto itself, if anybody would ever be interested in hearing the whole story of how that magazine came about. But we did like not a fanzine; we did down. an actual, we did an actual magazine, and uh, and it ran it ran three issues and disappeared. And through no fault of our own, man, we had great sales. We were getting letters from servicemen in Saudi Arabia, very cool. you know, going wow. like, "We love your magazine," you know. So we were distributed worldwide in the early 90s and then uh, our publisher our publisher ran off with all the money oh. basically what happened that sounds like a typical story <laughs> you know yeah, so a lot of intrigue and stuff like that so you know we would have kept doing that magazine you know uh, a lot longer and it probably would have been you know a rival because g-fan i think popped up you're everybody's familiar with g-fan out there oh absolutely oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah right so for the people at home who might not know G-Fan is a magazine that's out of Canada that's all about Godzilla. The first started out as sort of a, uh, a newsletter and developed quickly into a, a little mini magazine. And uh, it's been running since about 94, I think. It yep. came out 93 or 94 in the first. 93, I think. 93, the first issue. yeah. Yeah, because they did coverage of, of uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2 or Super Mechagodzilla or whatever they're calling it this week. <laughs> the 1993 yeah. uh, absolute movie constantly changed um, his name that was one of my yeah, first so. uh, accesses to well, as far as literature um because i mean much like you you, you with bob wilkins uh, my first experience with godzilla through my father um what was it sammy terry well yeah i think it was i think it was it was a sammy terry but that or the uh just the local independent station up there in indiana uh, the Saturday matinee movie at one o'clock every Saturday. Yeah. So showing the, the, yeah. uh, the double feature yeah. Oh, yeah. and uh, got to see the original yeah. Godzilla or the King Godzilla King of the Monsters is right. what I got to, to see. Yeah. And so for, uh, yeah, I mean like Ruben and, and myself as well, even through the eighties, it was those right. Saturday shows. Yeah. Um, and yeah. what books I found was Mark bringing me home a Marvel Godzilla comic book. Um, that he you know found by happen happenstance until I walked into a grocery store in Blountville, Tennessee, in '94, 
and picked up my first G Fan magazine. Yep. Just happened, and we're talking like Hillbilly Town, Tennessee, middle of nowhere. I was surprised it was right. there, and and right. it was the ep- issue. I don't remember the issue number, but it was the issue that was d- discussing uh, Godzilla Space Godzilla. It hadn't come out yet. Um, right. Right. And, and that was, yeah, my first literature experience. And of course, that opened a wide door for me as well. So I'm so glad that J.D. Right. Had, had done that magazine. Right. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, there was there were a lot of fanzines that came before that, you know, that uh, most people have forgotten, sadly, um, that had limited life little bit of life because they were, you know, they were basically being produced by fans for fans and you did it on your own dime and you charged like a dollar per issue or something like that. And you sent them out to people. And uh, I mean, there were a bunch of fanzines uh, in the seventies. There was this kind of little explosion. There was like Japanese giants, Japanese giants, fan letter, two different, two different zines. The guy, I guess one of the guys just couldn't come up with a more original name. So there was the <laughs> Japanese giants fan letter. There was Japanese giants. Uh, there was Godzilla mania. I think it was done by a guy named Richard Campbell. Um, Mark Rainey. Uh, who's a, who became a huge author of Dark Shadows novels? Oh, cool! Uh, he did he did a fanzine called uh, Japanese Giants. Uh, he started it, and then um, he he kind of dropped it uh, because you know he, he started following more teenage pursuits, and then um, I think Ed Gotchicheski picked it up from him. Said, "Hey, can I continue your zine?" And then that guy ran with it. Uh, so there were all kinds of zines out there back in the day, but you know, G fan came at a weird time because there was a you know there was a vacuum, and uh, I have to give the man credit for keeping that thing running this long, man. Oh yeah, for many yeah. many years. So, well, man, yeah, I mean the nineties was the nineties was not it was I mean Godzilla eighty three you know eighty five came out eighty four whichever one you say right came out and then there was for me down in south texas there was no fanzines there was i mean it was hitting down. Nice down here yeah you right. know just just to give you an example like my cousin moved from california to texas and he was wearing these strange shoes and we're like what's that what are you wearing he goes you don't know what vans are like, <laughs> we don't have those here and he goes, oh, they're all over california Right. And then a year and a year later, guess what? Everybody was wearing bands. It just took a year right. or so to get down here. Right. You know, so yeah, it depends but, uh, on how the, you know, the culture would pop culture would circulate. There'd be exactly, you know, something would become popular on either coast and then slowly spread across the country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, just one of those things. And right. it's the same way with magazines. Uh, with me it was more about music. Right. Like how do you, how, you know, my, my, uh, my son asked me, how'd you hear about Metallica? So I picked up a magazine and they were in new artist section. Right. You know, new band called Metallica. And then they hit it big. And that's the right. only way I heard about it. Right. Know? And then you go from there and you go like, I'm going to go down to the record store and check these guys out. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you exactly. had, you had to do blind buys, man. You had to go <laughs> yeah. just buy the album and go, I hope this doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know? yeah. yeah. We used to buy, yeah, exactly. no, buy the albums uh, according to the album covers. Yeah. Yes. That's a great looking album yeah. cover, yeah. man. I got to buy exactly. that. I hope this is a good <laughs> yeah. album. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I did that's how it was. That's how it yeah. was with Godzilla. That's how oh, it yeah. was with with exactly. anything pop culture back then. Right. As far as I go, down here in in South Texas, it was right. It was and really you tough. know the same story across the country with kids watching monster movies, where um, 
you know, you saw something coming up in the TV guide, you watched your local horror yeah. host mm -hmm. that was on every week. You just, you didn't care what movie it was. You didn't go, well, I don't really, I'm not really interested in Phantom of the Opera, so I'm not going to watch Sammy Terry tonight. Yeah. You go, I'm going to watch Sammy Terry every week. And you got exposed to, you know, a new movie that you normally yeah, wouldn't have right, maybe gone right, out of your yeah. way to see, you know. And so, uh, you know, I think no matter what part of the United States raised in, that was kind of a similar experience, shared experience with people across the yeah. country uh, during that time period from when horror hosts started in the late 50s, you know, all the way up to when they kind of started disappearing in the in the 80s. And uh, and uh, so and then you see the second generation of people that. You know, we're watching uh, TNT's Monster Vision, yeah, and that yeah. kind of kickstarted, you know, kickstarted another thing. And some people even told me, man, that uh, you know that uh, they had kind of like forgotten about Godzilla films or Japanese monster movies, and they started watching Monster Vision, and they went, oh, "I got back into it," and uh, and the, yeah. the that kind of wave were the first people to find that started trying to find stuff, and. Uh, what else, what else is out there? Or, or I want to, you know, maybe can I go buy something from, you know, one of these movies? Yeah. Maybe there's a, a figure or a poster or something like that. And then they stumbled across the new wave of Godzilla movies in the 90s that way. Yep. You know, and that all kind of congealed with, you know, uh, you know, what was happening with, uh, with a, sort of an emerging fandom at that point, you know. Yeah. No. G around G-Fan and, and G-Fest and the, the convention and yeah. And uh, and then the internet, you know, for yeah, better internet was a big yeah. deal. Internet was huge. Yeah, that's when that was such a, uh, uh, a, you know, it was such a just a plethora of information came out all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you can go to a whip, you know, go to. I used to always go to Bar was it Barry's Temple? Barry's Temple. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, Barry's I haven't Temple. heard that I name in a while. There in the very beginning. Yeah. And then, then through him, I started. You know, it was all this information. I'm like, ooh, now I can you know, he points you in all these directions and, and that's all I had back then. That right. was, that was pretty early on in the internet, you know, when you had to use AOL to get on. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, so it was just, yeah. When, once the internet hit, then all of a sudden it was, uh, it was awesome. Right. And also the fa the fan base grew from there too. Right. I think and, because. Yeah. And another, and another thing happened at that time period, which was, you know, you had stuff that was on TV there were very few movies you could go out to a store and buy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, you know, maybe, you know, you'd go to a Sam Goody's or whatever your local video store was that sold videos, or you go to your local video rental place, but there, you know, you, you couldn't find everything. Things went in and out of print. There were some movies that had not been released at all yet. Yes. Even older movies that, you know, we saw when we were younger on TV, um, and it was kind of hard to, to locate uh, stuff. So yeah. films like tonight's topic, Destroy All Monsters, yeah. fell that through the cracks in that, in that period yeah. of time. I didn't get to see that movie. And we talked about it the last time we, when we reviewed this movie. I didn't see that until it came out on VHS and it showed up at the video store for rental. Right. That was Before like the then, early 90s. It, it, wasn't on, it, wasn't, <laughs> it didn't make it to our theaters down here. It didn't uh, really. It wasn't on regular rotation. No, it didn't. I yeah, mean, that just didn't make it down here, and uh, and it wasn't on regular rotation on TV. So it was right. one of those movies that was like a legend. You right. Know, sometimes I I just didn't know of it. Then 
I went over to the video store and there it was. Um, it was Monster yeah. Vision for me. TNT's yeah. Monster Vision is uh, yeah. where I finally got to see that was Destroy the All Monsters. Yeah. And then it went from Monster Vision, which I absolutely love Destroy All Monsters, and we'll, we'll go ahead and segue into it, um, to my second viewing of it was when Sci-Fi Channel started picking up the guys oh, yeah. movies. And I remember watching it on Sci-Fi Channel going, what just happened? This is not the same movie I just watched on Monster Vision because at the time I wasn't aware of the different dubs where Monster Vision had the AIP dub. And then uh, Sci-Fi Channel was slightly different. And I guess that's what the one ends up being right. that ADV films had used. Yeah. Um, uh, and But either way, it was still just like, oh, this is awesome. So for me as a kid, you know, I mean, Destroy All Monsters came out in 68 and, and August 1st. Um, which a little, you know, for those who seen the episode or listened to the episode prior, um, the movie came out in 1968. Originally was the plan to end this series uh, with Destroy All Monsters. And so, yeah, that's uh, correct. Honda and, yeah. and Tanaka wanted to kind of go out with a bang. And that's why they brought in all the monsters, you know what I mean? Just cram packed what they did. It was, if I'm not mistaken, the highest budget of Godzilla films at the time. It had like a 200 million yen uh, budget and um, unfortunately did less than that did like 170 million in the box office um, but that was the goal was to make it a, a, just a big shebang and boy was it you know I mean I've seen it as a kid you know in the early 90s I just loved it I mean it was just so awesome to see especially you know seeing Godzilla, Amanda, Rodan and Mothra all attacking Tokyo at once I'm like I'd not seen anything like that it was, it was just absolutely epic um, so for me I mean prior to destroy all monsters had seen the original king of the or godzilla king of the monsters with steve martin and then at that point had really kind of gone through i'd seen everything prior uh, to it um I, and it had honestly seen a few after so i'd seen everything up to destroy all monsters just hadn't seen it yet had seen godzilla versus guy gan um you know godzilla versus smog monster got or some meg godzilla terror meg godzilla but that was one of those ones, Ruben, like you're saying, that for some reason, even on TV, had eluded me yeah. until Monster Vision had dropped it one day. And I was like, right. what? This is well, just I, I think, you know, they, um, like in Newcastle, Indiana, uh, where I grew up, you have one movie theater. And I didn't see my first Godzilla movie till Smog Monster. Uh, and that was, best I can recollect, the very first Godzilla movie that came to the only theater that we had in town. And so everything I got and, and watched destroy all monsters was through television. And just like August, I mean, dude, we would dissect a TV guide. I mean, we would tear it apart yeah. going through, checking the movies out, checking all the movies out, see what monster movies were coming on, you know, and, and especially like when destroy all monster came on, uh, I actually, the first time I saw it did not know it. And, uh, I was like, wait, what, what's this? Who's this month? What's this? You know? And I was just like ecstatic, man. I couldn't leave the television because I was like, Godzilla's in this. I'm in this movie right now. Yeah. And then you know, all these other just, monsters. Oh yeah. And just thought, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. It was just glued to the TV. And then, you know, you go and just like you, you go to school and you got to talk about it in school. It's like, dude, did you see that movie that was on? It was great. Oh yeah. So, I was blessed at the time around, yeah. around the time of seeing it because I had a, 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 a Japanese friend at school whose yeah. father uh, worked in Japan, but well worked in a company and had a factory when near where we, the town we lived in. And so they lived here. And so there was no Godzilla fans at my school other than Yohei. And so it, it, we just bonded 
and he had no friends because you know he's a Japanese student and didn't really speak much English. And so we bonded big time, and I was over all the time. We'd play with our Godzilla figures. Oh, yeah. and his oh, dad yeah, would bring that. us back Godzilla toys from Japan and crazy snacks and stuff. And uh, I, <laughs> so I lucked out. I mean, definitely, definitely big time. August, what about you, man? What you know? Because when we discussed, hey, let's let's what do we want to talk about for the show. You were pretty excited about Destroy Monsters. This is one of your favorites, correct? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a. <laughs> you know, I uh, when people ask, you know, what's what's the Godzilla movie that you watch the most? And that is, you know, changed throughout, you know, my life, my life with Godzilla. Because, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I never, I never, you know, dropped watching this stuff. I continually watched this stuff my entire life. Um, it depends on like, what period of, of time that, uh, you know, there's one point where my favorite, favorite Godzilla movie was, uh, the 64 Godzilla versus the thing or, you know, Mothra versus one. Godzilla. Um, and that was like the big favorite for a long time. Um, my relate, my personal relationship now is <laughs> with Godzilla is uh, like destroy all monsters. And that's the one that gets uh, the most play. It's, it's like a comfort movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of the films that I will watch. Cause you know, there's a lot of people who go like, I only watch, the subtitled versions <laughs> in Japanese. Yeah. Sounds like me. <laughs> you know, and it's like, <laughs> it like, I, you know, I, I used to promote heavily uh, back in the day to people who talked ill of these movies because, you know, some of them were dubbed a little dumb or, or poorly yeah. and uh, some of them were re-edited a little bit uh, and then you're watching them on TV and all you have is pan and scan where you know they yeah. cut the sides mm-hmm. off the picture you're not seeing the full you know widescreen image and so i heavily promoted like you need to see the japanese versions with the actual actors speaking their lines you know uh into a live microphone on set or they're doing their own looping but <laughs> as any movie would be produced in the states because i think it was on a radio show to promote our local tv station that Bob Wilkins was on was KTVU two in Oakland, Oakland, across the bay from us, and our largest independent. And they were going <coughs> to do the uh, premiere of the Bay Area, Northern California premiere of Godzilla 1985, first time on television. Oh man! And um, <laughs> they sent me out to do some radio shows, and I did this morning radio show, which has you know the typical comedian host that just bags on everything, and uh, if he gets fringe guests on, like. UFO people or, or, you know, stuff like that, that he will just like tear them apart until they're unable to continue to talk about their subject and they break down and then they just like walk out of the station. They, they thought that was a great gag. So they had me on and they, and they, the guys like going, Oh, the cardboard buildings and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just would just, I didn't get mad, man. What I did was I just waited till he was done. And then I'd go anyway, and I'd continue. <laughs> and uh, he did this thing. He goes, oh, man, isn't it? all those movies, it's like they're so bad because, you know, people are talking out of sync and it's so funny and they sound funny. I go, can I ask you a serious question? I go, do you like Akira Kurosawa? Oh, he's one of the great filmmakers of all time. I go, yeah, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo. I go, 
well, think of it this way. You know, he produced those movies that everyone unanimously says are some of the greatest cinema in the world. Those are produced at the same studio as the Godzilla films with yep. many of the same actors that you think are fantastic in Kurosawa. You're making fun of them on Godzilla. Same actors, same film crews. I go, so let me ask you a question. What would you think? Could you take this seriously if you saw an edited version of Seven Samurai cut from three and a half hours to about 90 minutes, and it was dubbed by three guys from the Bronx? <laughs> yeah. And he went, wow, I don't think I would take it very seriously. I go, exactly. And that's what you're seeing by seeing these chopped up, badly dubbed Godzilla movies. And, you know, I also realized, too, that, you know, that a lot of people were mostly starting seeing things like Megalon and Monster Island, Godzilla yeah. Skygan. And, uh, those were heavy rotation. Those yeah, and, the, the, heavy you know, rotation. those are the 70s movies. And, yeah, they're not greatly dubbed. And, you know, you're seeing them. They're kind of all chopped up and whatnot. So people had, like, this opinion that all Godzilla films were like those at the time. Um, so, you know, I said, just think about that. <laughs> you know, and he went, wow. And then... And I said, you should see these movies on, you know, uh, unedited and widescreen and, and in the original dialogue with English subtitles. And by the time, by the time I left the show, yeah, I actually was there till the show was over. He goes, man, I'm gonna have to find some of those uncut versions. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can change minds to people, but, you know, yeah. people have this, this prejudice, you know, stuck in their head. And, you know, that's one of the prejudices that is uh, kind of uh, tainted um, destroy yeah. all monsters for a very long time. Um, and why is that? Because of the infamous international dub, mm, so-called yeah. international dub, that Toho kind of pushed on the United States, um, you know, starting in the 90s uh, after uh, the AIP uh, version fell out of print, uh, you know, fell out of uh, distribution, rather. Yeah. And the funny thing is, like, in the, in the late 80s, uh, Ryan pictures uh had picked up oh this is oh i hate this story <laughs> oh my god it's what's the way that hollywood works man so you have american international pictures which you know started in the 50s and about 1979 they went okay we're done you know um that's a whole that's a whole like three-part show right there just about aib <laughs> the rise and fall of aib the point is they were going like okay we're out they started working with Filmways, which did a lot of TV show production, and uh, you know they had done stuff like, uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, which produced by Filmways, um, and Filmways uh, said, "Okay, we'll we'll take over this part of AIP." And uh, Sam Arkoff, who ran AIP at that time, he was the head honcho. He was one of the founders. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they divided up some of the titles, like. You know, uh, his old partner, uh, James Nicholson, he had passed away by this time. Uh, his widow was sticking her hand out, Susan Hart, who was an actress of uh, very little credit, <laughs> stuck her hand out and was like, he was like, okay, you take these films and we'll call it even, right? And he gave her, oh my God, poor Sam, Sam why'd you do it? <laughs> Sam gave her, gave her, I was a teenage werewolf, uh, it conquered the world. I was a teenage Frankenstein, I, uh, uh, Invasion of the Saucer Men, and a few other prime titles. 
And then he kept a few that he wanted. And then the rest all went to Filmways. And that included their Godzilla titles, of course. Uh, some of the stuff that was co-produced with Henry Schaperstein, an American producer who, uh, you know, uh, ran uh, United Productions of America and he right. was involved with the making of Monster Zero, War of the Gargantuas and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, he picked up some of the stuff that was owed back to him from AIP before they had their falling out about 66, 67. And, um, and then, uh, and then uh, Filmways got those and that included Smog Monster and Destroy All Monsters. And then uh, Filmways, <laughs> Filmways was in trouble and then they were bought by Orion Pictures. <sighs> and then Orion Pictures uh, decided to put out some of these old monster movies on VHS and they uh, were gonna do two waves. And the first wave had like a lot of stuff that was, you know, in circulation on television in the 70s. So they had, you know, uh, Monster from a Prehistoric Planet, which was Gapa. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they had um, Yangari Monster from the Deep, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and so on, right? They had, I think it was four, I think they had four titles. They were going to do an X from Outer Space and um, Gilala. And then they were going to do a second wave. And that second wave was going to be Destroy All Monsters <clears throat> with the AIP dub because they owned it. And then they kind of, then they decided not to do it. I guess the, the wave that they released, they did VHS and Laserdisc. And they just went, ah, eh, you know, the response was okay, but, you know, I go through the trouble of putting out the other ones. So there was a missed opportunity for Destroy All Monsters coming out legitimately in the AIP version, oh, man. you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. And it just kind of fell into the point where uh, some of the rights reverted back. Um, it'd be interesting to go through all the legalese to see what actually fell back and what Toho just decided, well, they stopped distributing this, so we're going to take it over. And then Orion Pictures in the 90s uh, went under bad times, and then they were bought by MGM. So all the stuff that AIP produced that went to Filmways, and then M and then Orion Pictures bought Filmways with their AIP catalog, and then Orion Pictures came along and bought that, and then Jeez. they got into trouble, and then MGM bought all that. So there's a lot of stuff sitting at at MGM, um, and then MGM doesn't want to do anything with that because they consider those a lot of that stuff Z, what they call Z grade. It's not worth going through wow. and striking a new print. And interesting side story. <laughs> what is this Rigoni guy going to shut up? Oh, no. Um, good. good. Yes. No, I'm loving it. I'm loving uh, it. I, was, I used to do a, uh, well, you know, I used to. Uh, for a few years, I did a, a classic horror film festival. Um, and this is like pre-80s, mostly pre-80s movies. And so, you know, we're talking about 50s up to the 70s, right? So I did this thing with some friends called Shock It To Me. It was in one of the biggest, oldest theaters uh, in San Francisco, which we promoted as a haunt, an actually haunted theater because a couple people died there. A projectionist had a heart attack and a girl fell off the balcony. Oh, wow. A little girl fell off the balcony. And, and the theater opened in the 20s. It's a beautiful theater, still open, still running, privately owned by the, by the family that actually built it in the 20s. So they're holding on to this thing. It's awesome. And it's a great 
they show a lot of it's a revival theater now you know so that means they're showing you know old movies right a repertory theater oh that's so anyway i come to i come to i come to them with this harebrained scheme uh for that toho's 50th anniversary and i was working with a, a, a few people and we were going like hey you know uh let's try to like look for some theaters and uh what theaters can we do a godzilla film festival in and uh everybody kind of wrote off the castro theater <laughs> this theater i'm talking about uh which had 1400 which has 1404 seats wow and wow. about 650 the whole theater and then the the balcony 650. anyway they do a lot of film festivals like the film noir fest and you know all these other film annual film festivals so um we decided to not talk to them because everybody else working on this project was like, uh, they'll, they'll never, they'll never do this. They're too high brow for Godzilla. They're just going to go, go away. <laughs> so luckily all the other places we're looking at, I didn't like, you know, and I kind of made it my, well, it's, I think we should go back. I had this gut feeling. I think we should go back to the Castro theater and, uh, went back, talked to them. They were like, we want this. Wow. So, wow. We, so we were, we came at them with like, we'll do a three day film festival, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Nobody's going to want to see more Godzilla movies than that. And the woman who was the programmer at the time, Anita Manga, who's one of the main people behind uh, the uh, the film noir uh, society, um, the film noir foundation rather, and one of the people that does the film noir festival, um, she was like. Well, my friend does is doing programming at the uh, in New York, and they're doing a Godzilla festival, but they're doing it longer, and it's spread out over the whole month. Um, so we want I need more days. Three days is not enough. Oh, wow. I went. Are you kidding? And she goes, No, we'll add some more days, and then it turned into a seven day festival. Wow! Wow! And we programmed. I programmed twenty movies. And then we had to do, we had to do, I think, a couple of non kai they wanted a couple of non-kaiju movies too in there, just to break it up. <clears throat> yeah. But anyway, so we do this big Godzilla festival. We brought some guests from Japan. That's a whole nother story. But because we did this thing, that I went, I want to do a classic horror film festival. And so I went after we were done and the theater was totally ecstatic. Uh, they had a new programmer uh, come in running the uh, events and uh, a guy named, uh, uh, why am I forgetting his name, man? Am I getting that old? Uh, <laughs> Bill Longin. So Bill Longin, I go to see Bill Longin and I go, hey, man, I did this. He was coming in at the tail end of the Godzilla Festival is when he started there. And then he goes, yeah, you guys did really good. I go, I want to do this classic horror film festival. And we called it Shock It To Me. And that was after a local TV program in the 70s. Um, and uh, Shock Theater, which was also called, it was either Shock Theater and sometimes it was Shock It To Me Theater. But anyway, so we did this, we did this big uh, horror film festival there. And uh, we did that for a few years. And uh, now I don't remember what the whole point of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know we were talking about the uh, AIP and then the yeah. um, other dub for the Strong Monsters at one point. IP uh, horror films, uh, you know, and uh, and we weren't we didn't take any of the '50s stuff. I mean, even though uh, <laughs> even though we were, I, even though within working within that period of classic horror films, I wanted to do 
the really good films, you know, not just to show something because this, you know, this was made by AIP, like, like, okay, let's, let's just show, you know, like, I don't know, Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, just because we can, you know, I said, well, you know, we should just do, um, you know, better, better films, you know, and not putting it in, I love Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, I watch it about once a year, I watch it every year, you know, at least once a year, I watch Ghost of Drags for Apollo because it's it's the it's the it's the template for Scooby Doo. Mm. Yeah. So just think of that. It's Scooby Doo. <clears throat> I never seen that. I need to watch, watch that. Now. Ghost of Drags for Apollo. Yes, yeah. it's good. And you'll see some parallels. You'll see some parallels. But anyway, so you know, we were doing things like uh, showing three Vincent Price movies in a row. I did call it three for the price of one. Oh, nice. Oh, 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 Ackerman puns. And we did stuff yeah. like that. But uh uh when we did the Godzilla Festival and we got Destroy All Monsters for that, uh that had to come from Toho. So we couldn't get anything from AIP. Oh, and wow. and Toho was like, you know, even though I know that the film elements are sitting in MGM for the AIP version, uh Toho wouldn't allow us to 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 find it and if someone they didn't even have a print of war of the gargantuas which we should which we screened uh with and we got russ tamlin to show up and host it oh that's cool and, and it was yeah. the first time russ tamlin ever saw the movie really uh-huh. yeah he had avoided it he only did that movie to get a free trip to japan <clears throat> i mean that's what he that's that's what he said to our entire audience. That's what he told me to my face too, is that he was in this period where he was anti-Hollywood. He was making his own experimental films. It was a free trip to Japan. He goes, I can make my, I can work on one of my experimental films in between the setups in my free time. So when they were shooting something on a location and they didn't need him for a while, they had to break down and set up another shot. Russ Tamlin would just wander away with his, 16 millimeter camera or whatever you had. I can't remember if it was a super eight camera or, or if he had a 16, but whatever. The point is he walked off and he shot stuff for, you know, his experimental movie, you know? And, uh, and so he had never seen the movie. He thought it was like going to be about the same quality as the Al Adamson movies. Mm-hmm. So he just kind of walked through that movie. He goes, I'm going to do this movie. I'm going to be a professional. I'm coming. I'm going to show up, be on time, know my lines, do my movie. And he did all that, but he was just going, it's a monster <coughs> picture, you know, it's a monster picture. How good could it be? So, you know, in later years after, you know, his success with, uh, you know, Twin Peaks and uh, he's doing, doing all these autograph shows like Chiller in, uh, in New Jersey, you know, people would come up and go, I loved you and just go out war the gargantuas. And he's going like, okay, that's cool. But he had never seen it. So he had no <laughs> wow. reference. He didn't really want to talk. People go, what do you remember about making that movie? Because I don't remember anything. He kind of like brushed people off on it. So um, we had worked with him prior, the prior year at our first Shock It To Me, because we did a double feature of a Curse of the... All our films were 35 prints, too. We didn't do any video, you know, it was all 35. Um, and we did a, a double feature of uh, Curse of the Demon with The Haunting. Oh, wow. And we got Russ Tamlin to come out for The Haunting. And then we said, he said, you come out, we'll have you out for, you know, before the haunting and you talk, talk about your movie, what your experiences, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, what's the other movie, Curse the Demon? He goes, oh, that stars uh, 
I worked with that one of the actors in that movie, and she and I did a movie called Gun Crazy. He goes, so can I just host the whole night? I, I, you know, can he, I, I had to write sure. notes, like curse the demon notes to give to Rust Hamlet. Because you know, <laughs> he's like, I haven't seen that movie in years, even if I did see it. And so he he did his homework, he watched the movie, he read the notes, and he came out and he did a, we did a whole funny gag because IMDB had recently at that time, this is 2004, the, the IMDB had this, uh, there was a scare that they said Russ Camlin died on the IMDB. Mm. And mm. so we did this whole joke. We did a seance on stage with a horror host called Mr. Lobo of Sinister Insomnia, who's nationally syndicated. He's still doing stuff. He's a great guy. And so we did a seance with the crystal ball on the table. And then we conjured <clears throat> Russ Tamlin to appear. <laughs> no. Uh, and then he goes, hey, we had him come from behind uh, uh, from behind the screen uh, out onto the stage. He goes, I'm not dead, you know. <laughs> and we asked him, we asked him like we're the awesome. same the, the day the day that he came in. We go, hey, we want to do this gag. Are you in, into it? He goes, I'm totally I want to do that. So he's a great guy to work with. And uh, so we had him for that year. Uh, and so, you know, when we asked him, hey, come out for War of the Gargantuas, he was like, cool his only stipulation was he wanted a whole row of seats because he brought the whole tamlin clan <laughs> a lot of his family lives up here so we had his daughters his you know other relatives his wife they all showed up right and um and uh you know uh and his his daughter amber who's an actress and a singer you know she was there uh china and china was there they all came there so the next year we I wore the gargantuas goes same deal he goes same deal just uh no i just need a whole row of seats right for my family right not cool no problem and we did that again he came out um we offered to give you know pay him to fly up because <clears throat> they live in la uh he and his wife and then he was like no nah. no nah, man it's not that short we get to see family while we're up here so Super cool guy. That's cool. We, we we gave him a table. We had a we the theater had a mezzanine, and we had a whole bunch of vendors, and we gave him a table, of course, so he could sign stuff and meet and greet. And here's another class act on his part, and was the fact that there had been there was some disaster. There was an earthquake in India, and so he said, you know, here's my photos. And, you know, you go to a lot of these shows, and these guys want. 40 or 50 dollars to sign a photo yep that's usually a crappy photo you have to buy their photo and it's yeah. like been duped a hundred times they lost the slide a hundred years ago and it's a copy of a copy of a copy and it looks blurry you know and and they want 50 <coughs> bucks you know like 10 bucks he was charging wow something like that it wasn't expensive because i would have that would have like i would have went i'm making a mental note of that because i don't think that's right but uh <laughs> but uh he had a sign that said, you know, all proceeds are going to earthquake relief. That's cool. Wow. He was like, I don't need this money. You know, I'm going to donate all this to the Red Cross or whatever it was. So, and then he said, if any of the staff of the theater or any of your staff at the film festival want photos, they all get them for free. That's wow. so cool. Very good. Class we don't act. see that. Really Class cool. Act. So, so right. after he sat and watched the whole War of the Gargantuas, I was sitting across the road because I walked him up. I sat him. I had, you know, I'm sitting there basically doing security, you know. 
though nobody would bug him during the movie. So I, you know, he never walked out of the movie. He was watching the movie. I didn't stare too much <laughs> at him at him watching his movie. And and uh, afterwards, I walked him up to the mezzanine and uh, the whole clan, you know, and they were all oh, chattering. Everybody's all, all excited about what they had just saw. And he turned to me and he said, you know what? That movie was actually good. <laughs> he goes, I really enjoyed that. And he goes, and the technical effects. Wow. For the time that it was, oh my God, they were fantastic. Totally became a, uh, you know, convert at that point. So now Russ Hamlin actually likes War of the Gargantuas, but yes, we had to get that print from a guy out back East. The guy used to run uh, video Daikaiju. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, about them a few times on our show. Yeah. And he had, he had a print of it. Um, and so uh, Toho went, well, you can get this private print because it's always iffy with these people. Yeah. Sometimes you can have a private print and a lot of times <clears throat> you can get permission to show it. And then they show up with lawyers to confiscate that print. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. You know, so Toho said, no, you can, you can show it, but you've got to pay us $500. And you can't pay the guy that's actually lending you the print. <laughs> he, he cannot receive any compensation at all. But we want our five hundred dollars, and you can only show it one time. Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, it's like Toho Toho puts their weird, you know, whammy voodoo on things, and with destroy all monsters, they kind of just don't want anyone to to know that the AIP version exists anymore. They're suppressing a lot of these these other prints that were dubbed by other people, mm-hmm. and they don't want anybody to know about it. Um, to, I, to and that's another thing that's um, wonderful about the internet is there's and with the fan base for us as Godzilla fans is that there is a um, a guy um, who's got a uh, who's gone through and and redone a lot of these right. AIP versions that Toho would release like Destroy All Monsters and he's right. taken the Blu-ray restorations and then taking the old AIP dubbing and he's synced it up and, and cleaned the audio up. And, and that's a version, you know, that I've got on my Plex server. I've got, yeah. you know, my, my Blu-ray copy with the international dub, the, you know, the Japanese version, but I've also got that AIP version he did. So the, the video right. is just, it's beautiful because yeah, I mean, we just yep. can't get, it's still, right. and that's, still that's, that, that version is still the best because uh, I've got the Blu-ray from Tokyo shock and then I've got the criterion. But both of them lack that AIP. Now right. the Blu-ray p- picture is not as good as the Criterion. The Criterion is beautiful, but it's got the international dubbing. So right. Red Menaces is still the best out there. Oh, it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. They they're they're doing they're doing Godzilla's work. They definitely yeah. are. I mean, yeah, uh, they are. Me being I mean, I'm a massive and any everybody who's listening to the show knows this. I mean, 85 is my favorite and has been since I was a child. Oh, nice. And still is. I mean, my I I'm only missing now two pieces of uh, of licensed memorabilia here in America right. from having everything that was done for uh, that movie in '85. Uh, right. And uh, just picked up the laser disc a couple weeks ago. Got right. the Betamax a month or two ago. Now to cool. find the elusive CED, which is going to be near impossible. Nice. <laughs> but um, you know, but that's what I love about you know Red Menace has gone through. We never got a DVD. We never got anything post laser disc. 
for that. Right, yeah. And then he got a hold of a 35 millimeter print and redid it. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Absolutely. Even included the Bambi versus God meets Godzilla yes. cartoon, which oh, was yeah. just awesome. Um, yeah, so, I mean, hats off because you got those fans that <laughs> are so diehard. And to them, it's not so much, you know, I want to make money because he doesn't make any money. It's, you know what? Toho is not doing this for us or, or you know, because I know for the, the rights for the 85 have just gone asunder for years going from, you know, Roger Corman over to Star Maker, you know, to Anchor Bay and just the mess that it's been through. Um, he's just like, I'm doing it because we can't get it. So I'm going to do it myself. And that's one of the things I like about right. our fan base is, is yeah. we love it that much that we're willing to do that type of work for this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we're, you know, we have the, you know, the ability yeah, technology uh, to, 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 to get yeah, to do that at home now i mean yeah. uh back in the 90s there were guys that were putting the old aip dubs onto the japanese widescreen versions like in their you know out of their their recording studio and it was just vhs to vhs is what they were doing yeah. back then so there were guys doing that and, you know these guys didn't have uh you know like sophisticated editing equipment they had yeah. audio equipment going because they were in a sound studio and it was a guy, uh, Jay Johnson, uh, who's, uh, I can't remember the name of his band, damn it. But uh, but anyway, Jay's always at G-Fest. Jay Johnson's a great guy, been around a long time. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, did the, he did that kind of thing, but he did it, you know, low, very low-fi mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, sometimes it didn't match because, you know, he didn't, he didn't have, you know, an avid editing bay, you know. And now you can have an avid because it was you know only rich people in movie right. studios could afford that you know avid was developed by uh ilm uh and lucasfilm and uh i got to work on one because a friend of mine uh was going to school at this at the san francisco uh art academy or the art academy of san francisco it's called and they have a, they had an avid editing bay and i needed a clip <clears throat> from destroy from monster zero uh it's the scene where where Nick Adams confronts Kumi Mizuno, you know, mm, and he does yeah. that whole thing. I, we got to get you out of that outfit, you know, yeah. got to get away no, from I... here, you know. <clears throat> um, and uh, it was the Japanese print, but the only available version you could get in English was the pan and scan tape from Paramount. So uh, we were able to rip the audio from the Paramount version and then sync it up perfectly to the Japanese widescreen version uh just that sequence we just took that one sequence and uh it looked perfect and and people were going like where did you get the widescreen english dub version from and we made it <laughs> yeah you know so and that's all i could afford to do he goes i can only have this bay, you know the bay i only have time in here booked for like an hour so we got to do this quick and it was only it's only like a two minute scene or whatever it is right and uh now you could just do that at home, man. You got fourteen-year-old yeah. kids doing this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you it know, takes. Yeah, and, and it hats off because it takes a lot of time and, and oh, yeah. effort. Yeah. I mean, I I did. It, these guys, you know, Mark and Ruben know they've seen it, and I've got friends that I've sent it to, and I did my own edited version of '85 where I removed all the American scenes, but I managed to keep right. and make a whole new intro. Uh, and keep all of Raymond Burr's dia- amazing dialogue in it, and then add some of the Japanese scenes back, but keep it edited the same way as the American cut for the intense, you know, the, right. the speed. And it took me four months. You know, I'd never done anything like that before 
to edit it together and to get the audio right. matched up. And, yeah. and so, I mean, it's a lot of work. So, I mean, I, these, the people oh, that yeah. put the came work out in, great, but it does put a lot of work in. Oh, yeah. Tons of work. Yeah. Fix and redo it again now that I got a Blu ray drive yeah. and putting it on 1080. But yeah, because even the Red Menace guy, uh, uh, you know, he had to create a new opening, you know, from scratch. Yep. Yeah. Uh, with the English title cards, and then he had to do the uh, the end credits, you know, and yeah. you have to go and try to find the exact fonts to match the original fonts they'd used in 69 uh, on the AIP version. Emulate the opening as close as you can. You're doing animation uh, with the AIP logo at the top, you know, and you have to take you have to take a frame from uh, still frame from that shot just before the credit comes up at the sunrise or yep. maybe it's a sunset. I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. It could be no. a sunrise. It depends on your, <laughs> oh, as Obi-Wan says, it's depends on your certain point of view. But, That's right. But, uh, you know, you had, uh, you know, he had to still that, but then he had to add grain on it to make it look like it's moving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just like, you know, the guy put a lot of effort, a lot of meticulous detail in it. Um, you know, and then that's the same thing with anything, you know, when you got, you know, yeah. put out something like that and you're always going to muck with it. You know, he did a, a 2.0 version of destroy all monsters. And, uh, I kind of prefer his first version of it, uh, audio wise. I think his audio on the English dub and that version in the, in the first one he put out was, was better to my ear. For some reason, I don't know. No, I agree but, with uh, you there because I've got both versions of it because I just okay, got a 2.0. Yeah. And there are occasional spots where um, the low end of the audio track drops out and it's kind of midi right. treble-ish on the 2.0 right. version. Yeah, the first version's a lot better. But, you know, see, here we are deep in Destroy All Monsters now. We've got back yeah. and refocused, yeah. reframed <laughs> yeah. to Destroy All Monsters. So where do we go from here with Destroy All Monsters, guys? Man, you know, for me, uh, it, it was, it, again, it was just a, a, the experience of, of Monster, Vision, or Monster Vision on TNT. Yeah, yeah. TNT opened up a whole world for me. Not only that, I mean, you know, when... But you got kind of obsessed with it there for a while. Oh, huge. Then, oh, yeah. Hugely. Because not only yeah. for everybody, it's like, oh, Mon you know, the kids yeah. that I knew or anybody was like, oh, Monster Vision, you know, I watched that. It wasn't just Monster Vision for me. A lot of people forgot that at 6.30 in the morning or whatever time it was in Tennessee, Ultra 7 came on TNT. Oh, yeah. You know? And oh, so... Yeah. Right. You know, what, you know, kid is like, I'm getting up an hour earlier for school because I got to see some Ultra 7. Um, so, I mean, Monster Vision just t was amazing. And I just remember for me, like you said, Mark, just seeing all these monsters was just absolutely epic. Oh, yeah. Um, and to me, it's one of the, and I stated on our previous episode about this, was one of the shining moments um, of the the Showa era. For me, it was, the, sure, it yeah. was the last shining moment in the Showa era until Mega Godzilla. Um, and yeah. it, it always holds staple. I mean, it's an, it's in a pretty regular routine, uh, for me. I said, you'll watch it at least six, seven times a year, if not more. Yeah. Ruben, what about you, man? All right. Uh, well, I'm gonna, mine is, you know, must, as everybody who listens to the show knows, Monster Zero is my favorite of the show era. That's a great yeah, one. You know, that's a great yeah, one. Yeah. That's Very always good. been my favorite. That's, that's my go-to, but, because I like Monster Zero so much, this one appeals to me quite a bit because uh, the storyline was was similar. Uh, you had more than one monster in it, so I loved that part of it. And uh, so that's what attracted me to it. And it, it's funny, you know, after we reviewed it the first time, 
uh, I watched it again, you know, and it, and it, it's one of the ones that I will watch more than once a year, you know, right. and, uh, I bought this criterion with all the movies and, and, and I thought, you know, perfect. I, I get to pop it in. Cause usually these Godzilla movies get popped in fall and winter. That's, that's my Godzilla season for the okay. most part, you know? And, uh, like every Christmas you get, uh, my son, RJ, that that's, you know, as soon as Christmas vacation started, that was okay. Let's watch Godzilla, Godzilla and Christmas Story. You know, that's what that's what we did, and uh, that's one of the movies that we watch. And a lot of times, I like this one a lot because it's one that 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 I was deprived of as a child. I didn't get to watch it for the first time till I was already a teenager. So, and and and, and looking at it that way, I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I didn't get enough of it back when I was a kid. So now it gets, you know, monster zero that was on a couple of times a year easily, but this one was never. So, um, uh, it's every time I watch it, it's grown on me a little bit more, you know, even though it was in an era where, where Toho was cutting budgets and kind of just trying to throw out whatever they could out there. It's still a great movie that, that that's a go-to. And it's great, like, if you want to introduce somebody. Now, everybody that listens to the show know this. I introduced my nephew and my son to Godzilla with Godzilla versus Megalon. Okay. Because I thought that was the film for a little kid, you know, five years old, four years old. That would keep them interested, and it was great for kids. Yeah. This one's another one that that if you're you're a kid, and once you get them into it, man, they'll be hooked for life, I think, if you throw in uh monster zero destroy all monsters and and megalon is like i said that one was ready available because i think monster i mean i'm sorry megalon fell into public domain there it seems like for a yeah. while it seems like oh, yeah. all kinds of stuff out everybody there. was releasing copies of it yeah everybody was releasing yeah. it. the one i have the one that i first got was the good times i got it for my right yeah, yeah right good times. and uh so i know it fell into public domain somehow i don't know how but it did oh yeah so that yeah, was that's... like the first one right it's like I think the uh, it was uh, Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster, yeah. aka yeah. Mecha Godzilla, uh, yeah. Godzilla on Monster Island, aka versus Gigan, and Megalon. Yeah. All three of those movies fell into the public domain, right? Uh, because Cinema Shares releasing the company that you know distributed those three films in the United States, um, they you know didn't make the proper filings. So those those movies kind of fell into public domain, and once a film falls into public domain, man, it yeah. doesn't Open come out of it. It yeah. doesn't yeah. come out of it, and uh, that's another of Toho's dirty little secrets. They don't want anyone to know is that uh, those three films under those titles, <clears throat> with the particular edits those films have, stand as separate versions from the from English there. dubbed uncut. Toho versions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's why when uh you had those movies on uh on the sci-fi channel, yeah, there was an artist by the name of Bob Eagleton, well known yeah. Godzilla yes. artist. Bob Eagleton is uh I have one of his shirts, uh bought it right. at a convention, yeah. the Godzilla versus Cthulhu. Gamera? Which one? Cthulhu, yeah. Uh, Cthulhu. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a Cthulhu. good one. That's a good shirt. My son has oh. the Gamera one. Yeah, see, <laughs> as as he should have that shirt yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but bob bob contacted the sci-fi channel 
and said, you know, you keep showing these really bad 16 millimeter prints of those movies, you know, like, you know, Toho has, you know, you could probably get better prints directly from Toho. So Toho, uh, uh, I think Bob contacted a friend of his at Toho. Of course, I'm telling a story that somebody else should be telling, which is Bob. But um, (laughs) the best that I remember of this story is that Bob basically said there's a better cop, there's a better version out there, Tiptoes LA office or somebody uh, uh, to it. Uh, Don't quote me hard on that. And then uh, they said, basically to get those prints out of circulation, Toho said, we'll give you widescreen versions, you know, beautiful widescreen versions, just so you take those prints off the air. (laughs) And and Sci-Fi Channel got those for free. Oh, wow. Because Toho, because if they said, we want to charge you, Sci-Fi Channel say, no, nah, we'll just stick with the same prints we already got that we can show free. 24 hours a day, 365. So, you know, True. that's one of those that's one of those bad things. Destroy All Monsters, um, some people thought that it fell into public domain. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, Toho, so. mm-hmm. One of Toho's main concerns with the, uh, the dubbed versions uh, that they don't control uh, is that they're, they're fearful of the actors, the voice actors, coming out of the woodwork and going, where are my residuals? Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if Toho, yeah. Where's my royalties for this? Right. Yeah. If, Toho, if Toho shows or distributes those prints, they believe that someone's going to come after them. So their, you know, their attorneys, or, you know, it's an American law firm, um, you know, said, well, you know, if you just don't, if you just ignore those versions, you know, uh, those problems go away. So um, I got that's why they, yeah. they supplanted it with that awful dub. So what Toho used to do back in the day is they'd, uh, they'd do a movie, uh, they would have it dubbed, and usually it was either dubbed in Japan uh, by an expat American named William Ross, who also did some acting. Um, and uh, he had a company called Frontier Enterprises, a dubbing studio. And he did like TV shows, like entire TV shows, multiple episodes like 70 80 episodes of a tv show he was also doing movies and then there was a group access Inter- i think it was access international in hong kong that also did dubbing uh unfortunately they were the ones that were used to from the 70s ones so you know it was like uh you know uh godzilla is on his way yeah. oh yeah yeah godzilla is yeah. coming hmm. but still yeah. straight away you know and what was that line it goes uh, we couldn't make the robots ourselves in Cetopia. Oh, yeah? Because you're too dumb. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, but William Ross's company actually dubbed uh, Destroy All Monsters. And the dia- some of the dialogue is like, wait, what? And, you know, you, look at, you listen to the Japanese version, uh, or if you have a translation of the Japanese version, you're kind of like, how do they mess that up? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of confounding. But what Toho would do is... Um, so a company like AIP would dub it. And what I used to think as a kid was, you know, uh, Toho would send like their master, like a master print, right, off of the negative um, and uh, in Japanese. And then the, uh, uh, you know, AIP would get somebody to translate it and dub it, right? So that's how I thought it worked. And uh, what was really happening was Toho would dub these things for, ex- you know, uh, international export. So there'd be other com- other countries in Asia or com- countries in the Middle East 
other parts of the world, Latin America, they would get sent, unless otherwise requested, they would get sent that these international English dubs. And so they would either, you know, subtitle it in like Dutch or subtitle it in Spanish or, or whatever, Farsi, whatever language it needed to be. It was usually just subtitled unless, you know, that the distributor preferred dubbing, redubbing them. Mm-hmm. AIP, AIP got the dubbed version and went, holy cow, this is awful. What do we do with this? And because AIP, the, the reason why you can do detective work on this without having to go through paperwork is because when AIP picked up uh, other Japanese films that they put straight to television, like Dogura the Space Monster, which mm-hmm. was also produced by Toho, it's the Hong Kong dubbing. And it wasn't that the Titra Studios or the Titra slash Titan is the company changed its name at one point. Right. They would dub those in New York. So you can tell which one's AIP just went, okay, we got this. Just put this one on TV. We don't have to redub it. We're not going to put a lot of effort into this. You know, so that's why you have like the, the gamers that they released uh, weren't necessarily re- a couple of them were redubbed, but you know, Sandy it would depend. Franks, it was, if I'm mistaken, then Sandy, uh, yeah, then Sandy Frank, yeah, then came Sandy Frank. Um, <laughs> but so you know, AIP got destroy all monsters and went, This is really bad. If we put this in theaters, people are going to walk out, you know. Uh, you know, we're already doing a, a, a prepos- this is already a preposterous movie about mm-hmm. with giant monsters in it. We don't want everyone just to walk out because they're going, this sounds like a bad cartoon, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh, so AIP had it redubbed. So this was pretty common um, because a lot of the dubbings that, you know, Toho, Toho did, they didn't really care. They just wanted them dubbed. They didn't understand. They didn't really know if they were good quality or not, you know? And I don't think anybody really cared. They just wanted something to be able to sell overseas. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So AIP did this great job of dubbing uh of this film uh you know very minimal editing i think they edited out one comedic shot of 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 minila aka <laughs> minya don't call me godzuki <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh you know that's they and that and that's really it that they they didn't really alter the film too much they you know removed the opening credit theme you know, to the end of the picture, which I thought yeah. works, it works a lot better. Yeah. Um, and uh, for me, because, uh, you know, I just, it just works better because that's the way I first saw it, you know? And uh, so speaking of the first time I saw it, <laughs> so uh, this was one of those films, like Ruben said, was kind of elusive. It didn't get played on television. Now it was in an AIP television package and it didn't seem that any of or normal stations that ran monster movies um, picked up that package. And that was a very most requested film for like the Bob Wilkins show, Creature Features. And for some reason, somebody must have had that package already and they were just sitting on it. I later found out it was our local CBS affiliate, uh, KPIX5, because they showed it one time at Oh, and I, this is like mid seventies. Maybe it was about seventy five. They ran it once at like two in the morning, oh. <laughs> because they were normally a sports station. 
you know they were primarily a local station that you know, a lot of their pre programming was skewed towards towards sports so movies were just sort of like something to show when a game got canceled <clears throat> pretty much um so i stayed up to watch it it was only in when the tv guide listed it as a 90 minute time slot now this isn't the first time i saw the film but and i'm glad it wasn't because what they did to it was a was unforgivable so you looked at it back then if you looked in the tv guy and you saw a 90 minute time slot they're going oh okay so those yeah. movies are normally about 90 minutes long and back then commercial commercial breaks for a yeah. two-hour time slot would usually amount to about maybe there is like about 10 to 12 minutes of commercials today it's 30 minutes of commercials yeah, yeah. but back then it was literally you would have you would be back in two minutes Commercial breaks in the 70s were about two to three minutes at the most. So this is a late night time slot. There's not, they're going to probably put some really, there's going to be bad commercials in it. Who cares? Whatever. <laughs> but this was, I think, a 60 minute time slot. Ooh. And I went, what are they going to do with this thing? Instead of like some stations like Channel 2, KTVU, which did creature features, they had a team and they were the biggest independent. They were like really highly rated, popular station. They were the, our local movie channel because they got all the top tier stuff, you know? And so uh, uh, they would they would have their film editors look at a movie and they go, okay, we got to cut this down by 10 minutes to make it fill in this time, fill this time slot. So they would watch the film and figure where they could make edits. These guys were pros, you know? These are guys that worked in the newsroom too, and so they would make the proper, the proper edits. And uh, but some stations didn't really care about that kind of thing. So what happened with this sixty-minute time slot is the movie starts with the AIP logo, and then the title comes up, "Destroy All Monsters," and then they go to reel two, which means they skip twelve minutes of the movie. Oh. So it went immediately from the opening credits to the SY3 coming out of the crater on the moon. What? <laughs> and I was audit and back then because we didn't have VCRs yet, they didn't exist for home for you know for, unless you were super rich you might have some crazy yeah. video machine. But when the first VCRs that went out commercially were like over a thousand dollars, so it was like oh yeah we don't need that. Um, so we would audio record stuff. And if something was edited, I would immediately, if the movie was edited, I would immediately stop recording, audio recording. Go, uh. so I have to have. One time I was so dumb as a kid, there was, the Mysterians is on, right? I'm going to audio record the Mysterians, the 1957 Toho sci-fi movie. Mm. So it was in black and white, so I stopped recording, doing an audio recording. <laughs> Because it was black and because it was black and white. I was just white. mad. I was just mad it wasn't a color print. So I just went, oh, I'll screw this whole thing. I'm just not going to even watch this movie. So I, just, uh, I could have just audio recorded it anyway, but you know, I, I'm not going to watch this abomination. They are showing a black and white print. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, so that was at one station that was sitting on Destroy All Monsters, and they did that to it, and we never saw it again. It was Man. only shown in, I mean, the movie, the movie was released in 1969. Uh, AIP didn't bring it to television until 1972. 
Um, and so from 72 on, Channel 5 bought this package. I mean, they showed some of the other movies in that package. There were a couple of Gamera movies. Those got on like on Sunday afternoons or something like that. But they sat on Destroy All Monsters. Yeah. Like the Instead best of letting another station have it. Another station would have ran that to hell. So they had, there was a station in Sacramento. Bob Wilkins also had a show on Sacramento television on Saturday nights. And they had Destroy All Monsters. But we did not have cable. Cable was a luxury in those days. Yeah. It was like, there's Destroy All Monsters on Channel 40 and I can't <laughs> see it. <laughs> and then a friend of mine who lived right next door to me, a classmate from school, you know, was bragging that their family just got cable. Ooh. And uh, this was around 74. And I went, they're showing Destroy All Monsters on Saturday at 2 o'clock. Can I come over to your house and watch it? <laughs> you know, so, but that wasn't the first time I saw it. Luckily, the uh, first time I saw it, it was rare. So you you would do things like, I will, you know, buy you guys all lunch if you let me watch cable so I could see Destroy All Monsters. Because <laughs> um, there's no other way to see it right now. Yeah. So uh, when it was in first release in, in 68, uh, couldn't see that. You know, um, so it comes around. I was too little, but here it comes. It's 1970. Uh, it's 1972 now, and uh, June 2nd, 1972. Wow. Uh, I saw Destroy All Monsters for the first time, and um, in a in a theater, which was amazing. It was the oh, best wow. way to have your introduction to this movie on a 150-foot motion picture screen with all the monsters looking gigantic and that Ipa Kube soundtrack blaring. And it was amazing. Now, there was a theater in my neighborhood. This was sort of like my... Uh, people don't think I'm too blasphemous. This is my monster church. My church okay. of horror films was the Grand Theater. And it was a 500-seat... Uh, what they call a uh, uh, what? So there's, it's a not a showcase theater, but it's, it's called a, I think it's called a neighborhood theater, and that's like you know a, the most smallest number of seats you could have with still being a legit movie theater. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they they only showed horror, sci-fi, and monster movies. That's all they did. That's my that's all like they great theater to me. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. That's all they did when I was a kid. That's all they showed. And um, eventually uh, they switched over to all Kung Fu movies. But I got a couple of really good years in there of just going to this theater. And the movies changed every week. And sometimes they were only open because they also, it was, there was a collective that did crack, uh, that were doing rehearsals for stage plays. <laughs> so uh, they sometimes only were open at this point in time. The Grand Theater. Uh, was only open to the public for motion for movies Friday through Sunday. And um, the, they were, and oh, here was the best thing. Did I already mention this? Three movies. It was a triple feature every week. Oh, no, you didn't mention that yet. Yeah, yeah. triple feature every week for 50 cents for kids. Wow. So my, awesome. my mom could get rid of me <laughs> For the whole day. <laughs> For the whole Thanks day. I mean, literally, 
Yeah. Literally three movies is like what? They're 90 minutes each. You're gone yeah. for four, four and a half hours. Yeah. You had and you had breaks in between the movies. So you know you're gone six hours. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. You had you had your 15 minutes between movies or whatever the intermission yeah. time was. You know, yeah. so you know, I was gone for all day. And um this particular day I was really jacked up to see Destroy All Monsters because I had read about it, uh, missed opportunities to see it, and then here we go. And the two co-features were Taste the Blood of Dracula. From 1970, the Hammer film with yep. Christopher yeah. Lee as Dracula, and the 1969 <sighs> disappointing film with 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 uh, Cameron Mitchell, Nightmare in Wax. Nah, I don't so, think I've even seen that one. Not okay, well, if you want, if you really no. do feel the need to see Nightmare in Wax, it's on Amazon Prime Video. You can watch <laughs> if you have Amazon Prime Video, you can watch it yep. for free. And then you can blame me later. Um, <laughs> so I sat through, I saw Destroy All Monsters, sat through both of the other movies. Uh, Dracula, loved Dracula films, loved Hammer films growing up. Hammer oh, yeah. films so, in general, I love. Yeah. <clears throat> and I sat through Nightmare and Wax, and then I go, well, I could leave now, but Destroy All Monsters is going to be showing in 10 minutes. So I sat and watched Destroy All Monsters again. Wow, nice. Right. You know? And then I remember somebody coming to pick me up. But I think <clears throat> that on the early part of the day, and I don't remember exactly how this happened. Now, there were two theaters on this block on the same side of the street. There was the Grand Theater, which was the chapel of, of horror and sci-fi and fantasy. And then there was uh, the Crown Theater that mostly, if I remember correctly, I think that was the theater that showed like a lot of Disney movies. So the Love Bug and the Shaggy DA and that kind of stuff. Mm. That kind of stuff. <clears throat> but then across the street was the biggest theater in the neighborhood, which was the new Mission Theater, which had 2,000 seats. Uh, that was also built in the... Tw all these theaters were old. These theaters were all from the built in the 20s. Wow. So the, the, the same weekend that I'm going to see Destroy All Monsters, across the street at the new Mission Theater, which showed all a lot of A pictures, you know, they got all the big movies, but then they would get exploitation movies and go like, we'll show this double bill. You know, maybe this will come and go in a week, you know, and then we'll go back to showing like, you know, Midnight Cowboy or whatever, you know, big, yeah. big Hollywood picture. They were the, that was the theater that showed all the big Hollywood pictures, but they didn't shy away from horror or, or uh, exploitation. Not the really bad exploitation, but sort of the mid-tier exploitation. Mm. So they would pick up AIP movies. So the same the same weekend, you know, and uh, that uh, the, the it's the new Mission Theater. The same weekend was showing uh, Frogs, <laughs> yes, with, with oh. Ray Milland in yep. first run. Yeah. That was a first run movie, with Frogs in its premiere, and the double feature. Because back then all theaters were double features, if not more, back in those days. You always got a, a you know double feature. There were very few movies that would play just one movie. It would have to be a big movie that was also long, you know. So something like the Andromeda Strain when it worked when it mm. opened, <clears throat> the Andromeda Strain played by itself. You didn't get another picture, you know. You might get a cartoon for <laughs> the movie or something like that, but it was it was just the movie, uh, just the one feature. So the, the new mission, the, the the new mission theater had frogs with the conqueror worm. The conqueror worm. <laughs> otherwise, 
1968, otherwise known as Witchfinder General with Vincent Price. <coughs> so, wow. so, you know, I popped across the street at some point that weekend, you know, and just <laughs> went, I'm going to go. And I somehow somebody let me in because I don't remember. Yeah. I think maybe I paid to see frogs and then I left because Conqueror Worm was like intense and there was no monsters yeah. in it. And it just seemed like endless scenes of people being tortured. You know, yeah. I was too little to like in, enjoy enjoy that. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember, that I remember you, that's not what you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, I remember yeah. being in the theater and I remember kind of like standing in uh the opera section. Uh that's how big the auditorium was. You know, wow. and, and watching and looking at the Conqueror Worm, like going like, well, I don't normally walk out of movies, uh, but I think I'm going to go do something else. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to stick around yeah. for this. You know, and then I left, you know. And just like, just like, you know, this is in June, the beginning of June in 72. And just a couple of months before in March, uh, Smog Monster had just been in first run. Yeah. Yep. And my, none of, nobody in my family, <laughs> nobody in my family wanted to take me to smog monster so i missed it oh wow Martin, <clears> that one nope, did make I it did, that one did make it down here smog monster yeah did make yeah it. i made it down to this theater yeah yeah that so, was oh, but that experience of seeing destroy all monsters <clears throat> in, a, yeah. in a in a in a in a theater with a big huge giant screen was uh something you can't replace by you know I mean, you see yeah. something on television. I have strong memories of movies I saw for the first time on television. But the impact of Destroy All Monsters was pretty crazy to, you know, a kid, you know, seeing, and I'd seen a couple movies, giant Japanese monster movies before, you know, uh, this experience. But Destroy All Monsters delivered everything yeah. a young boy would want to see. Yeah. You know? I mean, what, what's there? Uh can't remember 15 monsters it was 11 yeah 11, 11. right right 11. but yeah. besides that it had spaceships yeah it had you know outer space aliens stuff. Yeah, yeah they had, they, had the, they had they had the moon in there i mean it's funny that destroy all monsters came out in 1968 the same year that 2001 uh opened in yeah. theaters and the thing is is that uh the moon in destroy all monsters is, is kind of uh, played as a character of its own because it's uh, an exaggerated uh, and and after after the moon landing in '69, an antiquated, immediately yeah. antiquated version, which is ironic because Destroy All Monsters opened in America just uh, a month uh, before the moon landing, because I think it opened up in in the states. Let's see, when was the date? Oh, it opened up August 6, 1969, was its first play date in the United States. But, uh, you know, that's a month after the moon landing. Yeah. And so people got to see what the moon really looked like. And then you get Destroy yeah. All Monsters, which the moon doesn't look much different than it did in Battle in Outer Space from Toho in 1959, which is lots of jagged peaks, lots of yeah. jagged rocks and a craggy surface when, you know, as we know right now from as much of the moon as we've been able to, that has been photographed. Uh, see that it's mostly a lot of dust and you know it's it's it looks more like sand dunes than you know jagged yeah. rocky peaks but you know before the moon landing we had not you know a lot of people might not know this or 
maybe can't wrap their heads around the fact that we didn't we never sent any cameras like unmanned stuff up to the moon at that point but but, so, but yeah. even then the pictures we saw were on the you know on the tube yeah on the and tube, they were you know, you know was, yeah all that still. all the, the cameras that they had up on the moon were black and white cameras yeah and uh you know it, it they weren't exactly hd you know, so yeah exactly so, so you, it's yeah. not like in this movie you right st- you still have you know you still had it on the big screen right and you still, so yeah but so it's so exaggerated but kids don't right. care about that right i didn't right and yeah. you know a lot of these pictures when they were first released the godzilla films in japan they weren't directly aimed at children uh children made up a large part of the audience at a certain point but uh, these were all released as general audience pictures in Japan. And not until you get into the 70s, well, actually, with uh, Godzilla's Revenge in 1969, which is mm-hmm. the first launch of the Toho uh, Champion Festival, which was a kitty matinee series, <clears throat> where um, all the 70s movies were produced and released for. So it's kind of weird. Some people go, God, they, the Godzilla movies they made in the 70s aren't that great. Did they really release these to you know general audiences? And I was like, no, they weren't. They were shown no. as part of a package, a, a three or four hour package, with cartoons and shorts, you know, yeah. uh, and and they were shown in kitty matinee packages where an adult would be mortified to walk into a, sit in a theater with a whole, where it's all kids, you know. Yeah. Um, so those movies were uh, conceived, engineered, written and produced specifically for kids. Now, that's uh, Godzilla's Revenge Through Terror of yeah. Mechagodzilla. Right. Now, some people can take those apart and go, from an American perspective, you know, uh, that, uh, well, God, those movies are actually kind of, there's, there's I'm getting, I'm getting sort of contrary, um, uh, contrary uh, 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 vibes, for lack of a better term, that I can't yeah. seem to grasp right now. There's there's contrarian things in these movies that they're very very violent. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a Especially lot of make a Godzilla, right? Especially make yeah. Well, people blood, are getting blood shot yeah, for lot. the first time in, in right. Gigan. Yeah, and you got and you've got Hedera, the smog monster, which has got people melting on screen into skeletons. Yeah. You know, oh, so that, um, yeah. you know people. Love that as a kid. Right, you know, and a lot of American fans will go, well, yeah, these were you know obviously not kids movies but they're made they're geared towards kids but i'm going no these were kitty matinee films and they're going but that would never be allowed in america i go yeah japan is a totally different culture ergo there were certain other things that were permissible at that time that have since been kind of like you know parents groups and the japanese pta complained about that stuff and if you look at any of this Japanese superhero TV shows that were made at the same time as these movies were in theaters. They were these the producers of these things were pushing the boundaries because if they did crazy stuff and you know the kids would talk yeah. you know to the other classmates, oh my god, this guy totally melts, you know, yeah. and then he turns into a skeleton. So all the kids want to, oh, I want to go see that. Same thing we were doing here. I mean, we'd sneak into we yeah, I really, exactly I didn't really right. sneak into any R-rated movies. They just took our money. Yeah, <laughs> they never. I, I used to go as a kid. They, they didn't care. Yeah, they here, just take here, your here. money. And then there's yeah. like you know there's 
you know, you go see movies about pimps and, you know, yeah. <laughs> across yeah. 110th Street and, you know, kung fu movies with boobies yeah. and blood yeah. and people getting shot, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, nobody cared you were 12, you know. No. Um, as long as they got that right. money. Yeah. 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 They just took our money. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, people, some American fans talking to them, they still can't, uh, some of them can't wrap their head around the fact that these movies were made entirely for children, the 70s film. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, there was just what was allowed at that time, even though there were parents that went, Meh. but Japanese films moved into a more violent direction in terms of showing on screen gore. Uh, around that time in the late 60s, yeah. <clears throat> especially late 60s and, and, and through the 70s, because television had become so, such a giant competitor. Because yeah. even when, when in 1966, when Ultra Q, the, the precursor to Ultraman, premiered, um, the box office for giant monster movies started going down. Because children in Japan were saying, why pay to go see one of these movies in a theater when I can yeah. watch it free on TV every week? Yeah, yeah. I can watch Ultra so Q they needed, for free. They needed that shock value. They needed right. They go. I could spend my yeah. I could yeah. spend my money on gumballs or, you know, collectors yeah. cards or whatever. You know, yeah, exactly. um, yeah. and not go to and not and buy a movie ticket. I can spend it on something else and just watch Ultraman or Ultra Q on TV. It's free. Uh, I don't have to pay for a movie ticket. And so, and at the same time, Japanese audiences in general were dropping, theaters were closing during the 60s, all because of television. The same sort of thing that happened in the United States 10 years before, and which is why you got widescreen and, and technicolor and all these other yeah. uh, reasons to get people away from television. They're like, oh, you can't see this on a square black and white TV at your home. This is in widescreen and and, and technicolor and stereo oh, yeah. sound. They, they they come up with the gags. Like, yeah. Uh, is, it, yeah. is it Castle? I get confused. Castle with the William, vibrating. Yeah, William Castle yeah. with yeah, yeah the tingler. The vibrating seats. The tingler? Yeah, with the tingler yeah. and yep. yeah, the tingler. Yeah, Percepto. The tingler, <laughs> yeah, Percepto. exactly. Percepto, Emergo, all those you know, all those uh, gimmicks that he, he came up with. But yeah, you did those things. So, um, you know. Uh, Destroy All Monsters has a little more violence than uh, than uh, some of the previous Godzilla pictures because somebody gets shot in the head. Yeah, and they show they show <laughs> falls out small, of the building, a small little bullet hole. Yeah, you know, which was surprising. You know, uh, you know, because we hadn't seen. I mean, the most you ever would see would would, would be in a Gamera picture, but that was either purple or green blood. Yeah, because the monsters would get cut. Yeah, you know? and all the monsters did not have. None of the monsters had red blood. None of them did. Yeah. And I think that was pretty wise move on Dae's part or Noriaki Yuasa, the director's part, because, you know, you could do crazy gore, but yeah. then and it's not red. So it's not. Yeah, it's not red. So it's not, it's not blood. offensive, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's not blood. So <laughs> and, they got, and they got away with that, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Destroy All Monsters got oh, so much great stuff in it. Um, you know, you've got. Everything a ten-year-old boy would ever want to see, lots of monsters, uh, super science. You know, you got the SY three, which is all. You know, it's presented yeah. almost as a character in itself. Yeah. It's oh yeah. The, you know, yeah. it's the coolest spaceship you want to see. It was a uh, uh, beautiful design. Um, it's still a classic, I think, space vehicle. 
considering all that's come after it, it's still like I'm obsessed. I am, I not only am I obsessed with Destroy All Monsters, I am obsessed <laughs> separately and individually with the Moonlight SY3. <laughs> and I always have a model of the SY3 on my desk somewhere. You well, know? That's pretty awesome. That's cool. It gets yeah. it gets moved around, but you know it's 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 right here. I think yeah, right here. I actually had uh, mm-hmm. um, somebody that um, I'd reached out to a friend of mine. I was like, "Hey, if you had a chance to ask August any question, what would you ask?" And his thing was, "What what what's August's favorite example of like Toho science? Like he loves the Dimension Tide from Godzilla's uh, Meg Gears." <laughs> and so, would it be safe to say like the SY three is your favorite example of Toho science? But what was the what was his favorite thing? Uh, like he loved the Dimension Tide from Godzilla X Megaguirus, the black hole creator. Uh, oh, the, and, the black hole machine. Yes. Well, let's see. There's you know because you have you have kind of separate things. You know you have devices, you know, uh, or weapons. Yeah. Like the, you know, That's like a weapon. The, yeah. You know, like like the the oxygen destroyer. You know. Right. Um, and then you have you know Mecha or the vehicles, you know? So, you know, I, I always, always like the Mazer cannons, you know, from, uh, from Gargantua's. Oh yes. Love them. That have been, lo- you know, thankfully people got smart and brought them back at a couple of different points. So we got to see it again in different iterations. Um, I really like the A-Cycle light ray. Uh, I guess oh, yeah. it's not oh, a tank, yeah. it's a car from, from Monster Zero. Yep. Which yeah. was the first version? Yeah. It's like they did that, and then somebody said, "Hey, we could kind of like make this other weapon if we could just build them up out of this this vehicle." So it's yeah. kind of interesting internally. You could see it as sort of like we already built these things, <coughs> even though they had to make new parts for it. They just didn't slap a coat of paint on it. They had to kind of like, you know, yeah. they had to figure out, draw, and 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 build new pieces for the you know the, the, the yeah, elevator, the, the elevator framework. arm. Yeah, the elevator arm, the para, the, para, the the parabola disc. They had to build new stuff to this 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 thing that pre-existed, but it's almost sort of like real world science, where you build something, and then you build another version of it. You you know you can build on top of it. You can do the next model. You know the next upgrade. So that was kind of neat. So those are kind of like favorites in a way, but um, they kind of all get it. You know, they all get edged out for a long time. It was the Atragon mm-hmm. or the Goten. Goten, go. uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it's still a favorite. I bought that damn die cast that's like 14 inches long. And I've also got a garage kit of the Atragon that's a vinyl kit that is two and a half feet long. Whoa. Which I still haven't built in 20 years. <laughs> still in the box and i'm going if i put it together and i ruin it yeah you know so you put it you put it with all the other kits you bought and never built <laughs> boxes oh, it's just cool to have it's just i cool just i want to have, yeah. build that thing because when i i've been obsessed with the atragon for a long time since i saw it as a kid and on uh and uh you know i saw in the early 80s uh, these Japanese friends of mine who were putting magazines together and books and doing editing books on all this cool stuff. They did a, uh, and the garage kits, you know, came out of Japan. Uh, and they, they were, you know, uh, deep into that where Japanese fans were making their own versions of toys they never got or models that they were never made and released in Japan. 
So they were doing things like that. So this one guy bought, built like a, a three, was it a two meter? It might've been a two meter. So two meters is uh, what? That's uh, six, seven foot long atragon. Yep. Wow. Right. And, and he bought, he, he built this six foot atragon and it's shown in this one magazine. And I would just stare at it all day going, one day I'll have that. <laughs> one day I'll have something like that. So then I got this one and I went, okay, I got it. I'm just going to leave it in the box and, you know, <laughs> put stuff on top of the box. You know, it's like, get that thing out of the box and build it. But all that being said, um, it's the SY3, man. It yeah. is the SY3. As a kid, there was a, there was a, a fighter jet, the F-111, uh, that was developed by the U.S. Navy. Uh, and uh, might have been North Drop. I don't have the notes on that in front of me, but um, and it was one of the first swing wing planes that was going to be a military plane that could go supersonic. And um, I would stare at pictures of that all the time when I was a kid, when that when that was, you know, first uh, put into service. And I, I don't even remember. I, I can't look up. There's somebody out there who's going to go. Oh, <laughs> I have all the information on that plan. And I thank you for knowing that, man. Bless you. <laughs> but, you know, so please forgive my, you know, but I just remember as a kid seeing pictures of that plane, being obsessed with it and going, and then here comes the SY3, which was based on that plane and Thunderbird 1. So the oh, designer, the, all the guys that worked at Toho, all the guys that the designed one. stuff yeah. and built the miniatures and did the special effects, those guys were obsessed with things. They were watching stuff like Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds on TV in Japan, which was yeah. a huge hit. They bring it back like every 10 years in Japan and it becomes a big hit again. And they keep making waves of toys. Japan has made more toys, books, yeah. and <laughs> geez, I mean, books with amazing photos, behind the scenes photos on specifically Thunderbirds than the British ever have. <laughs> than anyone yeah. than anyone in Europe. The Japanese are obsessed with with Thunderbirds and it comes back. Uh, you know, it's it's transcended, you know, generations since the 60s. And uh so Thunderbirds was very uh much in their consciousness uh when they designed the SY3. Uh and uh you know uh Mr. Mitsui, yeah. uh, Mitsumi built or designed the SY3. And I think that's why it's kind of stuck in my mind, because as a little kid, the Thunderbirds were on TV here in San Francisco, and I was obsessed with rockets and spaceships, too, as well as monsters and dinosaurs. And so in the space program, I was obsessed, our real-world space program. And, uh, yeah, so the SY-3 just, like, satisfied several different points of my uh, imagination as a kid. So um, I, was, I, I was down in Los Angeles. Uh, a couple of times in the last couple of years, I usually go down a couple times a year to hang out with friends. It's no big deal. I'm not going down there, do anything special, just to get out of town and see something different. Right. Right. And there's a, there's a Japanese shop. They have a little Tokyo, which is their Japan town uh, in near downtown LA. It's right pretty much in downtown LA rather. And there's a Japanese, I guess the best way to call it is like a Japanese otaku nerd shop. That's called Jungle, Anime Jungle, which is an actual shop in Osaka in Japan. And it's two brothers started that business. And one of the brothers moved to the States and opened up the LA store, which has expanded into several stores that are all right next to each other. It's crazy. And uh, they have a lot of cool stuff. Uh, some of it is overpriced. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason why I say that is because 
you know, you could probably find a lot of people go there, look at stuff and then go find it online, you know, gotcha. a little cheaper. But every time I go there, they still have this same, it's about a two foot, you know, cause the SY3 is, um, you know, the, the main part, but it's also got the booster. So there's the full ship with the booster. Uh, and then there's the physical SY3 itself. Uh, the, 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 I guess you would call that, I don't know, the, uh, the command, the command module, Yeah, I guess we'll call that. That'd be a good name. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, they have a two foot, I think it's probably, I could be out of my mind and exaggerated in my, <laughs> my, <laughs> my big eyes going on. Oh, the world melts away when I stare at it in the case, but they have a built model of the, of the command section that it's built and painted, ready to go home with you with a price tag of 400 bucks. Every time I go down there, I just stare at it and go, I wish I could justify the money. I know I could pro- I know I could find this in Japan if I looked really hard. And I could probably find it, you know, for half the price that they're after asking for. And I would definitely buy it at that price. And there was a garage kit that was that was released a few years ago that that is the wings swing open and everything. It's oh ah. Uh, they released this company called Daimo has put it out a garage kit company that's run in I believe it's in Kyoto it's either I, I believe it's Kyoto or Osaka uh it's been a long day folks um so um <laughs> one of them the first one that came out came with a miniature Rodan so you could do like Rodan's getting near to the ship you know yeah the Rodan chase you know you could have that <laughs> yeah. suit and that's then there's cool. they released they released another version of it because the first one sold out a couple of years later, they put it out again, the new SY3, uh, the same model, just a new in the new new edition, uh, that came with the Kelex saucer. And it came with an option part so you could turn it into the burning dragon, the oh, fire that dragon. Would be awesome. Yes. Yeah, so it was like yeah. a clear, like a clear acrylic painted in flames Rain. that you could put over the saucer. You know, that was kind of cool. So you could display it either way. And I keep going like I should have bought it when it first came out. I could have got it for a couple hundred bucks when it first came out, but now in the aftermarket prices, no. Plus, I'll have to paint the damn thing, and which means it'll sit. Which means it'll be sitting in a box for ten years, ten years or, yeah. or longer. You know, just somebody else built it for me. There was a, you know, uh, I I built uh, who was it? What was the name of the company? I can't remember. It doesn't really matter right now. I'm wasting time here by going <laughs> these side stories. But there was a. A, mo- a company, a U.S. company, put out some classic sci-fi vehicles, uh, you know, over in the you know t- 15 years ago, uh, and they did uh, the uh, the Ark uh, from when worlds collide, mm. big silver bullet spaceship, yep. right? So I bought that, spent a lot of time building it, built the whole thing, had the silver paint ready, you know, to paint it, and then I froze, uh. and it's been sitting unpainted <laughs> since i put it together in 2008 and that that <laughs> god that's how i would be like I, I keep for the last probably two years i've been eyeing especially the last several months since we did the movie on the episode the pegasus hobbies uh kit for the kathoga from the relic movie mm-hmm. um a oh few yeah times. I, I mean that's one of my favorite monster 
movies period and especially movie monsters but i don't like you gotta assemble it and i'm like i'll totally assemble it but then you gotta paint it and i know when it comes to that i'm i'm screwed at that point i'm like it's just gonna sit there and paint it like all gray plastic like i need to find one put together or somebody you know yeah i'm with you there august because they would sit there for years just unpainted i've got a a universal monster frankenstein in a box you know because yeah i just i bought it i thought oh this is cool i need to have it i bought it still sitting in the box so is that is that an original in the square box yeah it's the The aurora yeah the aurora that's the one i've got yeah yeah yeah. in the square box uh no this one's in a rectangular box okay so that was like a polar lights reissue okay yeah it was was a reissue right right but it's the original kit that's the important part you know because yeah. They reissued the long, those were the long boxes that came out in the early 60s from Aurora. They did those rectangular boxes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, in 1969, they, they uh, what a nerd I am. In 1969, <laughs> they started switching to square boxes to reissue the kits with the glow in the dark parts. Um, yeah. The infamous glow in the dark parts. So uh, yeah. there were two generations of people that grew up with, the, with those, uh, those monster kits because the first ones came out in the 60s. Right. early 60s and then the 70s you know the kits were re-released in 69 70 uh and they had all of them out by 72 and there was probably what like 10 10 kits because you had godzilla kong uh frankenstein wolfman dracula uh you know and uh, the well, witch hunchback when they wrote yeah no then later they did rodan later this is the, their first monster kits then mar then in the mid 70s they said, well, we can't, we could just keep putting out these same kits. The molds are getting old. You know, why don't we, you know, we have uh, different technology now where we, the molding process, we can do more detail with a lot of these kits now than we could in the 60s. This is 1974, 75. We could do better kits now. So they launched another series of monster kits called, uh, uh, well, they had first done monster scenes, <laughs> which got them in a lot of trouble. Uh, but uh, Monster Scenes was basically like set pieces, like a torture chamber in a mad scientist lab. And then they did individual. And these were all snapped together kits when that those became yeah. popular. Uh, no glue needed because parents were concerned. Yeah, Kids those. were sniffing glue. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and so they said, we're going to make, you know, and then they, it, 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 turned, it made model kits bad, even though model kits had nothing to do with model makers had nothing to do or companies had nothing to do with the glue manufacturing necessarily so but they were getting dragged down in this in this social dilemma and so a lot of companies said let's just make kits that just snap together so that's what started that and then uh so they did monster scenes which were they did a torture chamber and they had an iron maiden they had all this stuff they had they've been individually they did like frankenstein they did vampirella uh, from the Warren comics, that same publishers as Famous Monsters, and they did a Mad Scientist, and then they did the victim, who was a girl in Daisy Dukes, and you know, had the shirt tied at the you know midriff, and uh, they got in trouble for that because they're going like, you know, you got kids playing with this, and then putting the girl in a torture chamber, <laughs> yeah, putting her in a cage, <laughs> and then there was, and there was this also this kind of like very thin. Which none of the guys who worked on this stuff even thought about, but there was like somebody brought up issues of like sexual perversion and <laughs> these things, and so the kids became notorious. They were banned, and so Marvel said, "Let's." I mean, not Marvel, but Aurora said, "Let's not make any, any more kits." 
And then about 1975, 74, 75, it blew over. They said, let's do a new series of kits. We'll make them highly detailed. We'll just stick to the monster stuff. And they launched a series called Monsters from the Movies. And um, they did Creature from the Black Lagoon Swimming. It's awesome. It's an awesome kit. And there's been reissues of it. It's, It's an amazing kit. I bought one. And then I had a pen pal in Japan at the time and told him, and he goes, oh, I want that. And, you know, you're a kid. You get an allowance. You don't have a lot of money. So, you know, I, I just I hadn't built it yet, and I just sent it to him, and I never bought another nope. one. And that kid is worth <laughs> so much money now. But uh, uh, that's why you shouldn't build any of your model kits. Just let them sit. And play. There, you, right. sit there. there you go. Justification. For, that was the strategy. I'll sell for thousands later. You know. Yeah. Uh, but then they then they did they did uh, they wanted to do you know Godzilla Japanese monsters were still popular so they wanted to do uh, some more monsters besides Godzilla and back then Toho was very cooperative a very cooperative nice company that didn't get mad at people uh, and so they go <laughs> oh yeah we, right you know that happened there was a time there was a time I used to call Toho when I was a teenager their LA office and talk and ask stupid kid questions and they were like really nice to me. <laughs> They didn't like laugh and hang up. I had a friend call them a couple of years ago because they wanted to do some DVDs of other Toho movies, not any of the monster sci-fi, sci-fi or fantasy stuff. And Toho basically laughed at them and hung up on them. Oh, Someone at the LA office like laughed at a businessman and hung up on it, inquiring about getting the rights for DVD uh, for a couple of films. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Pretty bad. Yeah. Toho's but anyway, so. Uh, Aurora gets the rights to do a couple of Toho monsters, so they do um, uh, they do Rodan and they do King Ghidorah, and uh, these apparently they, they apparently based the Ghidorah on the Destroy All Monsters poster, the American movie oh. poster. Mm-hmm. That's why his wings don't look like the wings in the movies, and he's kind of like his heads don't look exactly like they do in the movies. But if you look at the Destroy All Monsters AIP movie poster which ties us all back to Destroy All Monsters, pulling it back there we go. to Destroy All Monsters, uh, that, uh, that's the design that they based Gidera on. Mm-hmm. And then they were supposed to do another Godzilla, and they decided to stick with the 62 Godzilla. And, uh, and the line was canceled before they got Godzilla out. But they got all the way to the patterns. And uh, somebody recently bootlegged it, and you could buy it. You could buy this monsters from the movie kit and all those kits were snapped together and they also had one or two moving parts like the Ghidra is all you can move the jaws on Ghidra. Uh, Rodan you could move his one leg because he had the other leg was pegged on top of a building yeah like he's landing and crushing a building um and I think his beak is not his beak opened um I haven't looked at those things in a long time. But then uh, Godzilla had an opening, closing jaw, and the hands opened and closed. I kind of like Kung Fu grip on G.I. Joe, man. Classic 70s uh-huh. G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip. Yeah. And the set for the set piece for that was, I think, well, Rodan, he's landing on a building. It's like mm-hmm. in, the, in the city. Uh, and Ghidra was an air base. He's standing in an air base. And then Godzilla was, he's breaking down Tokyo Tower. So you could actually put pieces of the Tokyo Tower in his hands. So if you look online, you know, uh, you can find this Godzilla kit. They're charging. The guy who's doing it is just, they're just doing this limited edition fly-by-night under the table kind of thing. But they're reputable because a lot of people have already bought these. 
they've been out there for at least a couple months now, but they're they're going for about 120 bucks a pop. But if you want a really super rare collectible, especially something that was never released, that's the big thing. It never came out. Yep. But somebody somebody whole held on to these original parts. So anyway, blah blah blah. So you just said the monsters. magic words to me because I like to drop money on my Godzilla figures. <laughs> 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 I mean, right now with with the, the pandemic, you know, uh, I have to watch my spending. So I went, man, I would buy that in a heartbeat. You know, if, if you know if if we weren't in this in this situation we're currently in, where I uh, you know, so uh, I can't I can't do it right now. But uh, you know, I've seen the prototype. You know, years ago, uh, somebody, this guy had it and would show up at Chiller and brag that he had it, you know, for years. Oh, and then got to the point where nobody cared anymore because everybody's like, we've seen that for the last 10 years, buddy. Why don't you put it out? And then somebody did put it out. So, you know, it, it's out there. Um, I'll be hunting that I think, I think they molded it in pink. And people might go, why did they mold it in pink? Well, it's kind of a tribute to the first Aurora Godzilla kit from 1964, which was which was put out in fuchsia. Huh. And you're really? like, why didn't they just mold it in green like I mean, they did? Yeah, like they did done. by the time they came back with the kits in the 70s, like 69 when they reissued Godzilla, it was in it was in a metallic kind of a metallic greenish blue aqua. Some somebody out there is going. It wasn't. It was this color. Thank you, thank you. But <laughs> I'm just making a point. I'm not doing that for accuracy. Um, <laughs> send, your, send all your complaint mail to anything I said wrong too. Um, Sludge cast. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. have them forwarded to me. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, so this new kit is pink. It's a kind of a tribute to the original '64 kit that was in fuchsia. Um, which was an odd color. I, when I was a kid, I saw one of the fuchsia kits and I was like, why is it this color? Now you got to paint all of Godzilla like green. What are they trying to do? Yeah, you know, yeah. they got, they got, they do, they got to deal with the paint companies or something. <laughs> What's going on here? Bastards. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, the Ghidra kit was based on Destroy All Monsters so we can ver- <laughs> veer back, back to Destroy All Monsters. So. You know, Destroy All Monsters is also notable because, you know, it's got the most amount of monsters uh, on screen. It's yeah. got the monsters distributed throughout the movie. It's also got the best iteration of Angulus or Anguirus or Anguirus yes. yeah. that you've ever seen. Um, but I personally, that's my favorite iteration uh, of that of that monster. Uh, when they when they when they made the film, uh, they had to work with less less of a budget uh, than they had on Son of Godzilla. Uh, now, some people might go, huh? How did that happen? Well, you know, they actually, part of the expense, <laughs> why Son of Godzilla was more expensive to produce was they actually went outside of Japan to shoot some of the footage. They took the actors to Guam. So the scenes where they're running on the beach or any of the stuff that's not studio bound, because you can tell. If you're a seasoned yeah. movie watcher, you yeah. can tell the sets that are indoor sets. Uh, that I mean, uh, outdoor sets that were built inside of a studio. You can tell. It doesn't make it bad. 
Yeah. It's just so they can control the environment, people. It doesn't mean it's a cheap movie. Those sets yeah. are expensive to build, and studio yeah. time is expensive. And they still look good, right? And so yeah. they they had they did they had a uh, they had a sponsor with Pan American Airlines for Son of Godzilla, and they flew the principal actors to Guam, and they shot all the exterior scenes of the beaches, all the stuff on the island uh, were shot in Guam. So that added to the budget of that film. So, um, but you could also say like, well, you know, it's supposed to be, this movie is supposed to be set in the, in the late nineties and the end of the 20th century, but it doesn't really look that futuristic. It, it kind of just looks like the 1960s. Yeah. Um, but if you really think about it, <laughs> if you really think about it, your town, my town between the years, 1968 in 1999 didn't change significantly really you know a lot of the buildings were the same there'd be small cosmetic differences happening maybe a couple new buildings show up that are newer looking <clears throat> but they they kind of did that when they built the miniature sets i mean because you know that uh uh they they built some buildings that obviously didn't exist in tokyo they built uh they made up their own version of tokyo in the miniature sets mm -hmm. Um, but then you have very subtle, a lot of the changes they made were subtle because I think the logic within the constraints of working within the, the particular budget they had is, is the fact that, you know, things wouldn't really change that much. People wouldn't be dressing crazy. It's sort of like, if you look at the incongruent differences in like the back to the future movies, when they did 2015 and back to the future, there's some couple things that are spot on. But the way people dress completely never happened. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And if you and if you really look at it, I mean, we haven't really progressed in changes of style, unless you're talking about couture or high fashion. But every day, what people wear every day, the everyday average American, right, mm -hmm. doesn't dress much different than they did in the mid '90s That's to true. now. I definitely you know? don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's certain styles that changed a little bit, but. It just kind of got, and then you got kids now, like younger kids that are dressing like they're in the eighties, kind of that lasted yeah. for a couple, two years. And now they kind of look like kids in the early nineties, you know, with a flannel yeah, tied right. around their waist. Yep. So they look a little more grungy. Although if you ask them what music they're listening to, you'd go like, not in that outfit. I, <laughs> yeah, <really? no. laughs> You're doing this okay. all wrong. This is where I'm confused. But, uh, but they, the costume, there was some subtle costume design in Destroy All Monsters, which is not just off-the-rack 1960s outfits. There's, uh, there are several scenes with these guys who are the secret police. Yes. Right? Yeah. And they're going after, they're, trying, they're investigating the aliens, right? Trying to track them down. If you look closely at their suits, they look like they're wearing tailored 1960s suits. They basically took a standard 1960s small lapel suit. Yeah. Similar to what okay. Nick Adams was wearing in, in, in Monster Zero. Zero. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they, there's no lapels. They did this subtle design where there was no collar, no lapels. And uh, where the buttons go, there's a little overlap about halfway down. And then there's buttons there. So the jackets on suits are different. And it's suits that they didn't buy those off the rack. 
because those suits never existed in reality. That was their costume department. Somebody, the costume designer purposely did that. There are also some of the outfits uh, that the main uh, female character, Kyoko Minabe wears that are, that were just made up by the Toho costume department. They were never mm. sold in stores. Yeah, Women didn't dress that rack. way in 1968. They're not off the rack. They, you know, the difference is that a lot of science fiction pictures during that time, if you were showing something futuristic, like you got people running around in silver jumpsuits, you know, and yeah. nobody's ever going to wear those, <laughs> right. you know, in the, in the future, yeah. in the future of 1999, no one's going to yeah. wear that. You know, no one's going to wear some goofy looking thing like they would on Lost in Space or, you know, some Irwin Allen show. Yeah where they tried to show the future and the future looked like, wow, that's a really, really bad Halloween costume. Um, I've seen better cosplay from a five-year-old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so they had this subtle, uh, you know, costume design. And then you have the things like the other things that didn't exist, you know, like sort of like uh, the, the, the off-duty, sort of off-duty outfits that the SY3 crew wears, the, uh, the outfit that, uh, that Akira Kubo as Captain Yamabe wears, uh, you know, when uh, he goes to the central headquarters command room and he's got this red outfit on, it's a red coat and it's got red pants. He's got a red cap. You know, they just weren't pulling stuff off the rack. They, these, all, all these things were made specifically for the movies. So that shows like some, you know, some really nice design work that doesn't stick out. You don't notice it. And that's what makes it great because nobody's going, oh, that's a, you know, that's a kind of cool futuristic looking jacket he's wearing. You don't notice it. And that's what makes it more impactful. You know, you're not noticing it that, uh, that, that these, these, these costumes that they're wearing aren't real. Of course, then you go to the spacesuits, which are these like sort of yellow rubber, you know, yeah. <laughs> Debo. Yeah, they're like the Debo jumpsuits. But th that's yeah. the one thing where they made that allowance where they went. We kind of want to show the future. We don't want to use. They could have just used the same costumes that that Glenn and uh, that Nick Adams and and, and Akira Takarada wore in Monster Zero. Those were pretty much standard spacesuits, except for the color that NASA was using. You know that during the early part of the space race, Gemini, Mercury, and Gemini missions. You know it, it fits in with that. It, it doesn't look like somebody recently asked me they go they saw a still from monster zero with both of them in their in their spacesuits a head-to-toe shot and they went wow they couldn't even get them some decent boots those have laces and then i went that's exactly how the mercury and gemini astronauts were outfitted and they were like what and i gave them a couple nasa photos of all the nasa the gemini mission astronauts all the mercury astronauts and he took it back because he went i didn't know that i go yeah you can wear lace-up boots in a space capsule, in space, yeah. <laughs> you're not going. As long as you don't exit, as long as you don't exit. Yeah, capsule, I, yeah, yeah. You know, and then you go mm -hmm. into, you know, you go into the Apollo missions. Of course, they're going to be the guys that are walking are going to walk around the moon. They're going to be wearing something more uh, airtight, obviously. You know, so uh, yeah. you know, it's just interesting when people look back at a time where, you know, in hindsight, you know, you. When this movie came out in 68, even into like 72, you know, you could kind of compare. It did, it wasn't so crazy looking to people who look back because to them it's all retro now. Mm -hmm. 
You know? Yeah. So they're looking through a different set of eyes. Where they haven't, they weren't obsessed with the early space program. Like kids like me and every kid in America was in, in, the, in the, you know, in the seven, in this, you know, even though we ended the, 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 the Apollo missions by what, 74, it was all done. I think something like that. You know, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, looking back, you have to explain to everybody why this looked like this or that looked like that. And another example is like, you know, uh, in, in Destroy All Monsters, they had monorails, you know, and right. there were about all these, and somebody could go like, well, Disneyland monorail, and they have this monorail. So, but there is a monorail in Tokyo mm-hmm. <laughs> that has yeah. been there for a very long time. And it, it goes from uh, this, uh, one of the train stations in Tokyo, uh, Ueno, the Ueno neighborhood, or the Ueno, oh, sorry, Ueno ward, Tokyo's built up of 23 different wards or neighborhoods. Um, and it goes from Ueno Station all the way to uh, the airport. So uh, and uh, so you had this, what they did, they took that idea uh, and then expanded it to like this, there's going to be above rail, you know, uh, you know, above rail trains, above street trains into running all through Tokyo. So that was like another futurist touch. And if you were a Tokyoite, you know, at the time when this movie came out in 1968, you would go like, wow, that's cool. We're going to, now it's a neat idea to have monorails everywhere. But to an American, you know, you were no context of knowing what Japan or Tokyo is like at all. Uh, and especially in retrospect, you might find it to be uh, sort of a, a humorous, maybe. Yeah. You know, you might find it to be a little, uh, you know, funny. Uh, but that was, there was an actual monorail <laughs> in Tokyo. It doesn't, it's just like uh, movies like Logan's Run. Back when you, when I watched that movie, I'm like, I thought it was great. You look at it back, you look at it now, and you're like, well, that was kind of weird what they thought the future was going to be like. Right. And they yeah. shot they shot a lot of uh, all the interiors of the Dome City, uh, yeah. which the Dome City is an interior. Yeah. It's already an interior city. What am I talking about? But all they <laughs> shot all the, the scenes inside the city. Um, those were all shot at a mall in Dallas, hmm. Texas. Yeah. That was a brand new yeah. mall at the time, and it was considered a very futuristic-looking mall. Yeah. It's like the Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. They they took right. that. Yeah, they did the, the plaza. Same thing the there. plaza in L.A. The last time I was in L.A., we were passing that near downtown L.A., and we're passing that plaza. I can't remember the name of it. I want to say Daily Plaza, but yeah, that's Chicago. But I, I think okay. someone out there will know. Yeah, correct me. Um, Please let us know. Take my wife while you're at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they, uh, I was in my but, friend's uh, car. Yeah. We're, we're I remember driving. when they shot we're, that. I remember reading when they shot that. It was brand new. It hadn't even opened yet. Right, right, right. You know, and they decided, hey, we're going to shoot this movie here. Yeah, I think it was, it, part of, it, was, it was part of the university. I can't remember. Somebody can look. Somebody Google yeah, that. That's what I'm going to do. Google that. But when we were driving past. We were driving past that. We we're sitting in the car. It's not. We were driving to somewhere else from Little Tokyo. We had just stopped for lunch, and hanging out, and decided to drive somewhere else. And we're passing that, and it's like midday or whatever. It's like you know two in the afternoon or whatever, which isn't exactly midday. That would be noon, but you know whatever. So <laughs> mid, it was midday for me. But uh, uh, we're driving by, and I pointed. And I just went apes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long introduction to a very 
short, sad <laughs> joke. <laughs> we built up to it very well. So, that's all. Awesome. You know, yeah. But the structure, the, the structure of Destroy All Monsters is great. Now, yeah, it's basically a rewrite. <laughs> you know, it's basically a rewrite yeah, of Monster Zero mm -hmm. in a yeah, lot of ways. Exactly. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of like set on a larger scale, obviously. Um, and there are really interesting things in it. Honda wanted to elaborate on on a few of the things that are in the movie. Uh, he really wanted to elaborate on the first thing was what he felt in the future, what was going to be important because of concern back at that time uh, globally uh, was uh, was uh, ecology and, um, you know, future resources. And uh, the fact that uh, people were very, very concerned all the way back to like the 50s. These were topical concerns that one day we would run out of food, which is a central theme in um, in Son of Godzilla. Mm. It was also the whole reason why <laughs> Leo G. Carroll was making giant animals in Tarantula in 1955, yep. because then we'd have a food supply uh, for future, because we're going to have overpopulation. Overpopulation was the yeah. other driving theme that would ruin the the earth and that was very prominent in the 60s and 70s in dystopian science fiction was all about overpopulation and um with movies like zero population growth with oliver reed um soylent green oh yeah you know with yeah. charlton heston you had all these concerns <laughs> these were all running a lot of people look back at, at these movies like the godzilla films and they can watch them in a bubble and they can take them in a bubble but there was all these other things that were not necessarily influencing it but were currents in you know topical currents of the day that were important yeah. issues not necessarily well all the movies were talking about this so we're going to take from these other movies no these were important topics of the time period above and beyond movies yep you know so, you know, Honda wanted to really get into uh, more about uh, the undersea farming, which is mentioned just in the opening of the movie, in yeah, the opening just narration. Of Augusta War Island. Yep. Right. So he wanted to get more into that. Um, he also wanted to uh, show that in the movie, you know, there were things where Toho went, we don't have the budget for that. We're not going to give you the money to expand on that. Focus. Focus, dude. Focus on the monsters. But you can still put that in there. You can yeah. still put that in there. But but it wasn't that harsh. But you know, they they had to scale some of the ideas Hanna wanted to elaborate on that he had to scale them down. And he told this to um uh to myself and uh Guy Tucker in Japan. Guy Tucker wrote about this guy, a writer, Guy Tucker wrote about in his book. Um but anyway, so uh uh Guy Tucker also elaborated more with Honda, did a lot of interviews with Honda, um, and, uh, you know, asked him about each and every one of his films, because, you know, a lot of people would tend to interview Honda and ask primarily uh, about the, the important pictures, or the, 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 the most loved movies, and then you start getting towards, you know, the end of the 60s, Destroy All Monsters, you know, people just ask less questions about those movies, so there were less details in, in Japan published on those movies and when you get into the 70s there was like nothing you know it's like no none of the serious 
young guys that were writing about this stuff in the 70s and 80s in Japan, uh, they were kind of embarrassed to ask about those pictures. So they were asking about, you know, Godzilla and Mothra and, and uh, you know, um, the Mysterians and stuff like that. They were asking, you know, lots of questions about the early films and not so much when you get into, so it's kind of, it's been kind of frustrating uh, to, you know, that nobody really interviewed these people seriously about uh, things like Destroy All Monsters. But Guy Tucker, uh, who published a book called Age of the Gods uh, in the in the mid 90s, uh, which was all about Honda uh, and the and the films he made, um, he did hours and hours. He was living over there, and he just was. I guess he was like, "Can I come over and hang out? <laughs> ask you another four hours of questions about these movies." And 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 Guy Tucker had a lot of insight on his own, and I always great uh, conversations I had with him. Um, he lived in New York. I lived in San Francisco. We'd call him, each other on the phone. And next thing you know, it's like four hours later and we're both, we were talking just about King Kong escapes, you know, <laughs> you know, for four hours. And he would be talking about subtext of characters and stuff like that. Stuff that I was like, I want to know how they made this or how they filmed this shot. And then he was interested in, you know, the writing and, and how the characters, how the director, uh, you know, uh, motivated the characters or what he added to the characters or the story or the plot or certain uh, themes that ran through the movie. And he was finding things that I go, holy crap, you know? So it opened up stuff to me as well on certain films. And um, uh, Honda, anyway, getting back to that, Honda wanted to uh, expand on undersea farming and even uh, include um, that they were doing gene manipulation uh, and uh, breeding. There's a little thing yeah. about breeding, breeding marine life in the dial in the in the narration. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. And one version. Right. But yeah. Honda wanted to show these new forms of fish on screen. Until it was like, uh, nope. <laughs> you can't, you're not gonna be able to build a bunch of fish for this, you know. So um yeah. that didn't happen. And he wanted to go more into uh the space program. Uh, and uh, the moon, the, you know, the fact that the moon had been called or being colonized, um, and uh, you know, the, and what was happening with these, like, you know, these, this, these very, these, what do they say in the film? Daily flights daily, to yeah, the moon. Daily, daily flights, flights to the moon. moon. Yeah. And he wanted to go into this whole. I mean, they built, they, you know, they, they worked on this stuff. They wrote notes. These guys, you know, wrote notes and wrote the script. So there's like books of notes where you know you just sit there and you. You know, like we know now that, you know, George Lucas, in terms of Star Wars, had written lots and lots of notes, you know, and then he, and then, uh, you know, on backgrounds of characters that would get, eventually, they didn't appear in the movie, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, you build this world. So Honda was doing world building. And uh, with the world building he was doing for uh, the moon missions, you know, he had come up with this thing that, you know, that some people have asked me. You know, or I wondered, you know, when I was a kid, I wondered, is that, okay, so the, the designation of this ship uh, that folk is the focus uh, in the film, the SY-3, you know, it's Moonlight SY-3, right? So moon, Moonlight, obviously, means it's a moon ship from the Earth to the moon, 
Duh. Mm -hmm. What's SY? You can't find yeah. it. You can't really find it anywhere. Yeah. That designates. There's there's some things in the Toho films. They put this kind of thought into them, right? And uh, but then these things did not go into the popular culture. So you know you didn't have this appear in a book or a magazine because it's it's really interesting that when they did these TV shows and movies that there are things that they said we just want to cut to the action. We've got this, we've got this ship, we've got this weapon, we've got this device, whether it's a TV show or a Toho film or whatever it happens to be. Uh, the outside media would fill in those blanks. And the outside media being, or the per peripheral media, would be boys' boys magazines. Yeah. So when there's boys' magazines, they would go like, here's how this thing works. Like you get a, boy ma of this, a boys' magazine, and they would have a thing on the SY3, and it would be, let's say, the SY3 or whatever it happens to be. Uh, you have 2001, they did the same thing. They would do diagrams, cutaways. You had these Japanese artists slaving away on diagrams <laughs> and do cutaways and tell you how the discovery in 2001 works, you know? Uh, yeah. And uh, they've had those things with the SY3, where here's the, the reactor, you know, here's this, here's yeah. that. Here's where the ground car is. They'd work on the whole internal structure. <clears throat> And show you, okay, wow. the ground car comes out of this part, and this is where, you know, and they do the drawing. And sometimes different magazines would have different artists doing different drawings. So you could have different cutaways, <laughs> you know, that differed a little bit. There was very little concern for quality control in those days because why? Because, you know, these movies are going to come out, they're going to be gone. These magazines come out, yeah. they're going to be gone. And it's not going to really matter 10 years from now. No one's going to care about this thing. yeah so you know yeah. you have things like sy which is short for system okay so you know it's things like that 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 go into these films um that are interesting and with destroy all monsters there's a lot of layered things beyond just the you know just the action that takes place yeah well it's certain that certainly breaks it down a lot that gives me a different perspective on the movie that i've never really thought of um Especially, of course, you know, you know what I, when I, when I was a kid, none of that mattered to me. I was going to the movies right. and I was going to see. It was a monster movie. All that's these monsters we battle yeah. it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. Battle it out, man. That's all I cared about. Right. Now that I'm adult, well, now, you know, I can sit there and dissect the movie a little bit, bit more. And, uh, and it's cool because now you're like, oh, man, you know, you, you understand what's going on a little bit more. Right. Um, you can delve into the story a little bit um, and, and look at stuff like you're saying, uh, how, how did they do the miniatures? How did they do this? How did they do that? With a, with a better understanding. And that's pretty cool. Um, right. There's interesting um, things that they did with, you know, with the background yeah. on the stories, things that, you know, you know, you don't matter, that, that don't matter to kids really. But I was yeah. kind of fascinated by, you know, they open up the film with United Nations Science Committee yeah. And it's this whole yeah. structure. And there is, you know, there is a science division of the United Nations, but the one in this movie isn't that one, you know? Yeah. These, these guys, one. you know, these guys are apparently because of their insignias, you know, it's like there's uh, a United Nations working sort of at toe. And a lot of people, a lot of people might be scared of this, 
<laughs> you know, it's like you have that, you know, uh, one world government. And, yeah. and Honda, yeah. Honda was a pacifist. He was, he was drafted into the war, didn't want to be there. It scarred him, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we, that's a whole nother story, but, um, he was anti-war, he was anti-nuke and, um, because a lot of Japanese were, because after the bombs dropped on Hiroshima, uh, yeah. when yeah. Uh, Honda was a POW in China. So when the American occupation started pulling all the POWs, Japanese POWs out of China and, and they would take them back through Japan, they purposely drove them through Hiroshima. No. Wow. You go like, that. don't think about picking up your guns again, boys. Because we, yeah. we got more of these. <laughs> you know, so but Honda immediately became, he, nobody could conceive of one bomb that could do that much damage. Yeah. I mean, you could say in a science fiction novel, there were always super weapons that go back before the atomic bomb. Like bombs yeah. that could blow up whole planets or whole solar systems. Yeah. You look at the Lensman series by E.E. E. Doc Smith, series of great science fiction novels. But they kind of became ridiculous after a while because they started blowing up bigger and bigger things. You get to the point yeah. where, you know, this planet is threatened. Then you get to this whole solar system's threatened. This this whole quadrant is threatened. This whole galaxy yeah. can be blown up. Then you get, this will blow up the whole universe. You know, there was no, <laughs> they just kept the, 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 the bugaboo, you know, uh, became bigger and bigger with each story. But so uh, nobody could really wrap their head around that something like that could be real, you know. So Honda was very affected with that. Godzilla is not only a lot of people consider the original Godzilla character to be as conceived by Honda. Just looking at the movie itself, you know, people go, well, you know, obviously Godzilla is a symbol for the bombs dropped on Hiroshima. And um, no, not really. I mean, you can not, yeah. you could do that. You could do that and you wouldn't be wrong necessarily. But the creator of that character and the way he wrote you know, he was a co-writer on the script and he was the author of the picture uh, being a director you know honda honda said that godzilla is the embodiment of all war yeah and i would agree with that more than right than and godzilla is also else. a victim yeah. of the h-bomb which yeah. you know came after world war ii yeah and i think they right. i think they especially um the uh, Hideki Anno, I don't know if I pronounce his name right, and, and his crew with with Shin Godzilla, I think they captured that victim side oh, yeah. so well in Shin Godzilla, yeah. especially with the way he looked because he looks in pain constantly. I mean, just right. I love that part of of Godzilla. Yeah, a part yeah. of the, the original the original film uh, is uh, when people talk about Godzilla scales, which you know aren't they're not really scales. You know, they don't look really like scales, but his body texture, um, those are purpose were purposely designed from the get-go in concept that these were keloid scars. Mm -hmm. Those are scars yeah. you develop from radiation exposure. Radiation. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Godzilla is not only a, uh, a result of the H-bomb tests, he's also a victim of the H-bomb tests. And the manifestation of uh, nuclear weaponry is in Godzilla's breath. That's where that comes into play. That's what that that's the visual symbol of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's Godzilla's not just the one thing. Like Godzilla is obviously just 
the, the A-bomb. He's not. Godzilla is a victim of the H-bomb, a totally different bomb. And then also, you know, uh, the, the manifestation of nuclear weapons is, you know, his yeah. breath. Mm. So, a, victim um, of, of a victim of science. Yeah, so he's a victim of science, like Frankenstein. Like Frankenstein's monster yeah. is also, he's trapped in a world he never made, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, it wasn't uh, his choice. Right. It wasn't and, Godzilla's choice. Either. Right. And then by the time we get to, you know, destroy all monsters, the culture had changed in, in Japan. The, the character had to change. Yeah. um event over time and uh you know even though he was becoming sort of heroic he was still you know like the reluctant good guy he was still he's kind of an yeah. anti-hero you can't really call yeah. him a superhero until you get in the 70s where he's just he's a superhero that's yeah. what he is oh, yeah. in the 70s yeah but you know some people will cite well in Ghidra, the three-headed monster uh godzilla becomes a good guy yeah he doesn't become a good guy no. You know, he's protecting, he just, he's protecting yeah. his turf. He's still a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> he's still, he's yeah. still stepping on buildings. He doesn't recant, you know, yeah. he, he even, and, and, and destroy all monsters, the same thing. He's tearing through. Of course he's controlled by the alien. Right. But even, even, but even, after, the, even the reason, the reason yeah. why that, the, the, you know, they have monster land and they're sealing all these, they have all these systems to seal the monsters in. It's because they know if they wander out, they're going to break stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. With evil intent or not. You know, there's an episode of, I believe, Ultraman Gaia from 1998, mm -hmm. which isn't available yet. A lot, you, we know a lot of Ultraman stuff is coming out on Blu-ray and streaming. Yeah, but Ultraman Gaia is one of my favorite shows, and the reason why I bring that up is because there's an episode that opens up with uh, like there's an incident. You know, they always have to open up like any TV show with an incident where you have a couple guys doing something, and then especially with a monster show or a science fiction show, then something weird happens, and then you cut the credits. Right? This is the opening of the show. Right? The opening moment, the hook. Mm -hmm. uh, every every good show has a dramatic hook. You know, the first moments. It opens up. Two guys working overtime in a kaiju insurance office. A kaiju, a kai, a kai, a, a kaiju yeah, insurance. Yeah, kaiju damage insurance office. That's awesome. So they actually That's made awesome. that a thing, you know, which is really cool. Um, but anyway, so you know, in in Destroy All Monsters, the other great concept, of course, is Monsterland itself. You know, just the high concept of like. We're going to round up these monsters. We don't have to tell you how we did it. We're not going to show you how you did it because back in the day, you didn't have to show everything to everyone, right? Right. Yeah. You didn't have to see everything. Now, audiences today want to see everything, even though and that they would catch be, everything. Yeah. They'll catch anything that's out of the timeline or anything that's not. Right. But I mean, you know, but people, audiences yeah. today demand to see stuff that's not necessary dramatically. Yeah. You know, and uh, and you know, it, it, they say we captured them, we put them on this island, <laughs> and here they are. We're going to show you how we jail them. We're going to show you how we keep them in. You know, and that's what I really want to see. But that whole concept of, of Monsterland is uh, really, you know, pretty awesome for me. <laughs> for me, and still yeah. is. I love you know? it. To me, it was it's, as I look back at or look at Jurassic Park, and I'm like, hey, they did that in Destroy All Monsters. You know, what I mean, it's like. Yeah, yeah. That well, was I think look. I think there there were, there were rumors in Japan that you know that Michael Crichton 
when he wrote Jurassic Park. It was a novel before it was a movie. Yeah. That, uh, you know, he must have saw Destroy All Monsters on late night TV, you know, and went, <laughs> yeah. oh, it's, a, it's kind of a good idea, you know. <laughs> Make some money. And it's also, it's also ironic that in the book, uh, the making of Jurassic Park, there's a, there's a, I don't know if he, he wrote the for, whole forward. I saw it. I saw it at the time the movie came out. I didn't buy the book, but I remember seeing this because there was a Godzilla thing in there, which is Steven Spielberg's quoted in the in the in the foreword, I guess you could say, um, that uh, Godzilla was all was always the most realistic of the giant dinosaur movies because it made it when you it was because he seemed the most real. It's something like yeah. that. Not an exact quote. You can Google that. Yeah, for the quote. I, I know. I know what he's getting at. Right. I know exactly. But what you know, getting. he cited that, which was, but Destroy All Monsters doesn't have, you know, doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, uh, God. Okay, that joke failed. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that joke failed because I couldn't remember the actor's name until just the second. I say Destroy All Monsters isn't that great because it doesn't have Jeff Goldblum in it. There we go. There you go shirtless on a table but it's got right? a, but it's got a Kira, <laughs> it's got a kiro kubo in it and you know oh, as, yeah, as a kubo. yeah i love him and, yeah. and as a as a fan of this particular movie when we did our godzilla fest in 2004 november we did it in the 50th anniversary month at the castro theater here in san francisco we invited some guests from japan and i specifically wanted kubo and we got kubo Right. It was Kubo's first trip to the States and his first meeting with American fans. And um, when we were all done with the event, we had them here for, we had them here for six days, I think, or five days. And um, at the end of it, we had a dinner the night before we, they flew back to Japan because we had a Kira Kubo, we had Hiroshi Koizumi, who was the star of Gigantus, and Mothra, and uh, he's one of the main cast members in a bunch of other films as well. Uh, and then we had Stomu Kitagawa, who played King Ghidorah in Mothra 3, and played Godzilla from Godzilla 2000 on to Final Wars. So we had those four Japanese guests, uh, and then we had you know Russ Tamblin and, and uh, another American, who played the mayor of Newkirk City in the original Mothra, Ed Keen. Huh. who appeared in a whole bunch of Japanese movies in the 50s and 60s. And uh, he's living in San Francisco. <laughs> I met him in, uh -huh. in the 90s and kept in contact with him for years and years and years and said, I want, to, I want you to be a guest. You were in Mothra. We're going to have you come on stage. It was the first time he, he and Koizumi, Hiroshi Koizumi, knew each other and hadn't seen each other since 1966. Oh, wow. They, That's cool. Yeah. And um, it was, it was, a, it was, I could talk about those guys forever, but, and what in the, the what everything that happened during that week, but we had a Kira Kubo, so we're doing the dinner after the night before they're going to leave. So we're throwing them the big farewell dinner before we put them on the plane the next day and send them home. And uh, so I'm sitting across from I wanted to sit across from Kubo, and uh, we're I'm telling him how much I appreciate him coming and and how much he you know his his films mean to the fans. Uh, how much is he does his characters mean and then I was always and I, and I really emphasized his his character from destroy all monsters being such a badass you know he was like a hero because you know he played like 
yeah. a nerdy inventor and he played like kind of like a college guy in a couple films and you know yeah. but the real dynamic action hero the only one he got in in the Godzilla films was Destroy All Monsters where he plays an action guy you know so I made him cry oh <laughs> he got wow. really emotional he got really emotional he did the <clears throat> <laughs> and then he had to put his head down because he didn't want to see anybody see the tears in his eyes. And, so and, and I, that's what I was going to ask when you were bringing that up. I said, what was their reaction? Were they surprised at at the fandom on, on, and the state on, on, on the state side? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Kubo had never been over here. Ko Koizumi had been many, many okay. times. And Koizumi was a guest at a couple of the conventions uh, in New York, in Chicago. Um, so he was used to the fans already. Koizumi okay. was. Kitagawa had never been here before. And he was totally stoked. And he was the younger, you know, obviously the younger of the, of the guys. Uh, so, uh, you know, he wanted to do things when we were done. And I would be up at like, you know, I would be up getting these guys up at the hotel at like eight mm -hmm. in the morning. So we to, to, to do breakfast and yeah. do sightseeing. Then we'd go do autograph signings and then we'd go back to the theater for the matinee and put them up in the mezzanine at their table. Then we'd take them to lunch and then we would like take them sightseeing and then take them back to their hotel, then pick them up and then take them mm -hmm. back to the theater for the evening performances. So that's what my day yeah. was like every day. And then um, Kitagawa was like, okay, you put the old men to bed. Let's go bar hopping. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I awesome. fell asleep. I fell asleep at a bar in Japantown, a Japanese bar. <laughs> and and he just stood. I woke up because he stood in, over me and made fun of me. <laughs> having, <laughs> having no stamina. Having no stamina. Oh. oh, man. You know, so it was pretty funny. And then he forced us because, uh, you know, you know, you guys know what Super Sentai is, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, the origin of the Power Rangers. Yep. Um, Kitagawa was one of the main rangers in a bunch of shows. Uh -huh. And uh, so he's been Godzilla. <laughs> you know, he's been Godzilla. He's been King Ghidorah. Uh, the only thing he hasn't done is Kamen Rider and Ultraman, like be in the suit, right? But he worked yeah. on a lot of Toei Tokusatsu TV shows in the 70s. That's his first jobs working with uh, Sonny Chiba's Japan Action Club. But anyway, so like it would be like late at night and he would make me and whoever you know, my other partner working on this on taking care of him all that week where it was uh, my friend Dave Chapel and anybody else who was tagging along with us he Kitagawa during that festival where he's going we're going to the bars would force us late night to do super sentai poses <laughs> you have to do the roll call pose yeah, oh man. You know, so he's doing that. And then he did this game where we went bowling because he loves bowling. And we we're bowling one night and and he goes uh and he would every time he hit a strike, which was a lot. <laughs> he's a great bowler. <laughs> okay. Every time he yeah. and of course he's Godzilla. Of course he's going to be a great bowler. Yeah. Uh, cuz Godzilla is powerful. So so uh every time he got a strike, he would do a super sentai pose and then we would have to tell say which one it was, which character oh. it was. <laughs> Man, that's a ball. cool game. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing that. But uh, 
Uh, I did get to, uh, you know, uh, let Kubo know uh, that, uh, you know, during that event, that uh, how much he meant uh, to me, to fans, and uh, and how yeah. I, you know, one of the lesser films, and I'm sure a lot of the Japanese fans who've interviewed him, you know, I mean, you know, favorite mm -hmm. Toho science fiction or fantasy film you got to work on, and all of them always say Matongo. And that, that's because it was an actor's picture. It gave them more to do. They were the right. stars of the movie. The monsters yeah. came at the end of the picture, you know? Uh, so they weren't competing with Godzilla, you know, for screen time. Uh, so they all pretty much say that. But I wanted to tell him that I appreciated his part in Destroy All Monsters. Because I'm sure nobody in Japan tells him that shit at all. Nobody's ever right. told him, your part in Destroy All Monsters is great. I really doubt that. So um that's awesome I mean, you know that's my favorite character in the movie as well and kubo's yeah. I mean, his character's awesome in this yeah he, he does so, a great job leading so right so there's a lot of great things going on you know the united nations science committee the united nations basically actually working <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's the kind yeah. of that's the kind of future that uh, honda was, was was hoping for where uh you know the nations would put down uh hostilities towards each other and work together for a better world for humanity um and uh that theme runs all the way back to like the mysterians and which there's a lot of elements you know of the mysterians that's also in destroy all monsters uh primarily the you know the aliens are coming and they're they're going to stay here you know uh which was also emulated in monster zero so you know monster zero yeah. is also an elaboration on the Mysterians theme. And I think yes, one of the early, they did they, they, the space race, the interest in the space race in the mid 60s was at its all time high uh, before the moon landing. So when they made Monster Zero, there was a conscious effort. They jokingly said, this is the Mysterians plus Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Basically that was mm -hmm. the, that was their uh, uh, kind of uh, underlying theme that they were gonna mix those two things together. You know, like chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah. Two great tastes that go great together. Yeah. Well, they succeeded, I'd say. Oh, that definitely. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Is he still there? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm still okay. here. So, so it's like, <laughs> we, we it, it so, quiet there. I know. So, man, that's awesome, dude. Like, one first August, again, thank you so much for, for jumping in on this. And... Uh, this is one of the things too, because like my wife messaged me. She's like, "How's it going?" I'm like, "It's going really, really good." You know, because my studio's yeah. downstairs, and uh, August probably knows this. The fans or people who listen to, so she sits upstairs quietly watching YouTube videos or you know whatever she does. Right. And I'm like, I was like, I just the the stories are just awesome. Like to listen to to August tell some of these because it's just it's so yeah. cool to hear the experiences, especially uh, and thing not only that but things you've done and the experiences that you've had. It's just like man. I wish that was me. That would have been really cool, you know, especially like, yeah. I hope it would be passed out drunk in, you know, little Japan and having. I, I don't know if I'd be as composed as, I don't know if I'd be as composed as you were in some of those situations. I'd be a, turn into a total fangirl. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> With Kubo. And that would be the one, though, like, that's awesome yeah. what you, you know, talking to him about Destroy All Monsters. And that's, of course, what this movie means so much to you. But I mean, I would unfortunately be one of those dudes because when it comes to his roles, I love him in this. But man, I do. I love him in, in Attack the Mushroom People. Like as Kenji, he is awesome. I, I just I love that role. Oh, yeah. 
I think because I like that movie so much where because it's so much more different to, than just your standard Godzilla. Again, you know, my my favorite Toho film besides the original Godzilla movie is actually Half Human. I, I love that movie. Yeah. You know, that was just a much more personal creature and just different than the giant monster stuff. So watching movies like Attack of the Mushroom People or The H Man, I love The H Man. Um, you know, I, I really dig into those movies because it's just something a little, you know, not used to the normal formula of Toho. Um, so Kubo was great, great in Attack of the Mushroom People. Yeah. Kubo is just a great actor. He's, he's a really great guy. Uh, uh, he uh, <laughs> he sort of was, uh, he took lead, even though Koizumi is older than him. When they were there, he kind of became like the boss, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, he would say things like, Okay, uh, you know, uh, during the show, uh, we were we were doing. He would say, you know, I think this would work better than this if you did this this way, which is kind of unusual because a lot of Japanese, if you're doing something wrong or doing something that they think could be improved, they don't criticize you on. They don't put anyone on the spot because that's kind of considered yeah. rude, and you're you're putting. And then they just they just bitch to their friends afterwards about it. You know, they're like, <laughs> oh, those guys were a little unorganized. Um, but Kubo said, you know, can I get, uh, you know, can I get this or that, or can we get this or that uh, X amount of time before? Because we worked everything out with schedules and all that. And he was like, you know, when we go on stage, he goes, when we go on stage, are we going to have, you know, you, you have prepared questions. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you have prepared questions and then what you do, uh, you know, we do free form, you know, which is yeah. obviously someone starts saying something that based on your question that you've asked. And that leads to something else that you didn't account yeah. for in your questions. So mm-hmm. then you go, tell me more about that. Or was this like that? Or that, you know, and it leads to other things. And then you get back to your main questions. And that's, you know, that's pretty common in, you know, was, you know, pretty much common in, in, in interviewing people like celebrities or filmmakers or whatnot, or anybody for that matter. But, uh, but Kubo was like, you know, I'd like to see all the, like, we'd give them the questions like an hour or half hour before they went on stage. And, you know, those had to be translated into Japanese, right? So, um, and uh, so then Kubo was like, I would rather prefer if we had a meeting two hours before and we'll just sit down, all of us sit down in person instead of just handing us the, the notes, you know? Uh-huh. And and then, and then uh, like, Kitagawa goes, Kitagawa was like, well, you know, he's a taskmaster, you know. <laughs> but no, that was really cool because we wanted to make them 100% happy. And uh, yeah. we even, you know, I actually, I think we actually collectively, the people who worked on the show, or specifically, you know, my the things, the way they worked out, the people that were taking care of the guests, myself, Dave Chappell. Um, when Coop, we had it at the last night before we took him, before we took those guys to dinner uh, for their farewell dinner, they did a farewell speech on stage, you know, which is kind of customary, you know, in Japan, when you do some kind of a film festival or a screening, there's always this like farewell address and a message to the audience, you know, where all of the actors are like, this is my first time in America, or, you know, I had a great time. I'm totally blown away by how many fans there are. We didn't know that people liked our old movies anymore. You know, we had no idea what, you know, what uh, if people even remembered our movies overseas, this blows us away. And they were telling these kind of things as their last 
thing. And Cuba was like, this is my first time in San Francisco. It's also my first time in, in the United States. And there was a last minute thing that happened. This leads into a story. So hang on that, hang on that moment right there. And then there was a, we were taking them to, to restaurants. I, we had already planned all this out, but there were restaurants we were going to take them to. You know, we knew all their dietary, you know, needs or whatever, likes, dislikes. And so for some reason, there was a schedule, a thing ran over, right? Like some autograph thing. And we didn't, we're not going to tell people, we got to take them to dinner now, go away. You know, we just let them get all the, let all the people waiting for the autographs, get their autographs, and then we'll, you know, we'll cut it off, right? We don't want to turn anyone away who's paid for a ticket to see these guys. So we're running a little late. We panicked because by the time we could drive to the restaurant we we're supposed to go to and have them eat without rushing them to eat and come back, we would be late for the next movie because they would be, you know, some of them were on stage talking about the next movie. So on the same block, there was a hamburger joint where they charbroiled the hamburgers, not a fast food place, but they actually made real burgers, right? And it was like a 1950s diner style kind of place, you know, that mm -hmm. most of us think are cheesy. You know, it's kind of like, eh, that's kind of goofy. But we said, you know what? We could take them there. We'll sit them all down. I'll, I'll take all their orders because this is where you walk up to the counter and place your order. Oh, yeah. I'll take I'll take those. We'll get them their hamburgers. We'll be out of here with plenty of time to the theaters like 500, 600 feet away. And we go, oh, man, I hope they don't hate us because we're taking them to this little <laughs> tiny burger joint. And they're going to go, oh, they took us as a real low-class place. Because <laughs> we were taking them to, like, nice places, you know. Yeah. And we we want them to give them the best experience. And uh, anyway, so we get them in there. You know, I take as soon as we sat everyone down, they were, luckily it was at a downtime for the restaurant. So there were plenty of so we put all pushed all these tables together. We got him to sit down. I explained to the guy who ran the place what's going on. These are all a bunch of actors from Japan <coughs> doing the thing at the theater, blah, 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 blah. And as I get everyone seated, there's a TV in there. And they're just playing whatever's on, a, whatever channel they're watching, right? And a Godzilla commercial came on TV. Oh, oh that's cool. And yeah. it was that Pepto-Bismol commercial with Godzilla with footage from Godzilla versus the thing. <laughs> where, he, where he wrecks, where he wrecks Nagoya Castle. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the first thing you hear in that commercial, if you're not looking at the TV, is Godzilla's roar. And everyone at the table looked up like, "What the hell?" <laughs> and then I went and I pointed at the TV and I go, "Godzilla!" <laughs> and it was from Koizumi's movie. You know, the movie Koizumi was yeah. in. So that was kind of that really set. The atmosphere, great. At that point, that was like, how could that even happen in reality? What are the I astronomical? Know, what are the chances of the, the actor? For the actor from this movie, it was made in 1964. There's a clip of it in a U.S. commercial on TV right now, right where he's sitting. How could that ever happen? And so, you know, they have the meal. We get back to the theater. I, we think everybody's fine. You know. They were all amused because it was like a real 1950s diner kind of thing. They were kind of yeah, amused I by. Bet they, it. I bet. I bet they loved it. Yeah, they. They. You know, they. They didn't say too much. You know, we yeah. take them to a nice because taking people to nice Chinese food, not like takeout Chinese, but 
but a nice Chinese yeah. restaurant in Japan. That's kind of a big thing. If you go to interview a celebrity and you want to spring a big yeah. dinner for him, you take him to a Chinese restaurant, a high-end Chinese restaurant where it's authentic Chinese food. Yeah. So, um, and that's kind of, so we took them to places like, and we took them to specific, like San Francisco famous places. Not, I got not super high end. We're not rich, but you know, right. it's like yeah. we took them to really nice places. Um, so anyway, uh, when Kubo is saying his farewell, and he's saying, I saw this, I saw the Golden Gate Bridge and we did this and we went to this park. And then he went, I had my first real American hamburger and he started crying. Uh -huh. Oh wow! That that was that's what I that, that's what I was expecting. I was waiting for when you're telling the story. I said, "I bet he's going to say that they love the hamburger." And out of out of the whole group, out of the whole group, Kubo was the hardest nut to crack. He was very stoic and very professional the whole time. Meanwhile, Kubo's making jokes and poking us. Yeah. Akita Gao was like, "We're making we're making sexual innuendos with Godzilla," <laughs> you know. <laughs> he said something. He he you know, we uh. Mr. Lobo, we had different horror hosts also do little skits and stuff for you know before some of the movies. So uh, we have Mr. Lobo from Cinema Insomnia, and he's up on stage. He did this thing. We had a bird cage where he had two Barbie dolls dressed as the Peanuts. You now okay. the, the girls from Mothra yeah. were in the cage. Yeah. The Eileenas yeah. or the Shobi Jean, the little beauties. So um, we we had been joking with Kitagawa about. American words uh, or English words sounding funny in Japanese, or the way Japanese pronounce or phoneticize English words. And we got, we one night we were joking around, we got hung up on, uh, <laughs> we got hung up on peanuts. Oh, okay. And I was telling him, and he, he was like going, oh, peanuts. And I go, yeah, but you know, peanuts and what certain words in English sound like other words. And so I said, you know, it yeah. kind of sounds like penis. <laughs> no, and he's he, he, someone made a joke about hot peanuts they used to sell hot peanuts and then i just said i was aping japanese phonetics and i was going hot peanuts hot peanuts <laughs> i go i go hado 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 peanuts hard i kept saying hard before peanuts <laughs> peanuts and so Kitagawa yeah. started we were drinking in his room and he just you know he's falling over himself <laughs> and and so uh, we had a couple, Mr. Lobo's on stage doing his bit before Mothra, and then we're going to have the actors come up and talk. So Kitagawa's sitting with all the rest of the actors, and I'm sitting behind them because uh, I'm going to usher them on stage, make sure, you know, everybody gets up on stage. And Mr. Lobo's doing his bit with the cage, and I lean over to Kitagawa across his seat. I'm in the, behind him, and I go, Ah, do peanuts. <laughs> and he just started laughing he's like he's going don't 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 make me laugh in front of the older guys because they're going to ask me what i'm laughing at and i'm gonna have to explain it to them he was so embarrassed we were putting each other on the spot like all weekend so uh you know that was that was pretty funny that's awesome cool good guys kubo was a great guy and he like i said you know it's like he was the most because he didn't know us and it's his first time in america you know so uh, you know he uh but by the time we were done, you know, he was just like he had opened up so much to everybody. And and that was a really great experience to, uh, you know, to make him cry twice. <laughs> that's that's August proud moment in life right there. <laughs> Not once, but twice. 
<laughs> it was it was it was you know it was just a great experience to you know to to make them feel appreciated you know and maybe sometimes you you know you put these people through shows and they just bring them from the airport or their hotel and plop them down in front of a table sign autographs and then they put them on the plane to go back home yeah you know we wanted to make them feel you know they, we wanted to make them feel honored at every step yeah you know and and because they, they were such a big part of our childhoods i mean all of exactly all of us, you know. <laughs> yeah um, very you know, so, so that goes all the way back. And if he wasn't in Destroy All Monsters, I wouldn't have given a care. Kubo, you can just go sit out in the rain for all I care. <laughs> <laughs> go eat, go eat some mushrooms, bro. Do go eat some yeah. mushrooms. Yeah, it worked for him once. <laughs> just kidding for anybody out there who thinks I'm being serious. Yeah. Well, August man, dude, thank you so much. We gotta wrap this one up. Uh, yeah for this i mean this has been awesome and again yeah so Thank humbling you. for the fact that you took the time out of your day and your schedule to do this with us and i mean we cannot thank you enough a million times yeah, over. yeah definitely appreciate definitely. it man i really appreciate it you know it's been fun you guys are great yeah. and uh you know <laughs> you, you don't know how much we appreciate the fact that we have not heard sludge mention the word titanic man one episode. Long. we almost went through one episode mark one episode. Oh, so bringing that up man God. <laughs> the running joke on the show august is, is uh two of my most with well, my three most hated films of all time is Titanic by James Cameron, <laughs> Spider-Man 3 by Sam Raimi, and then the 98 Godzilla film. So those hey! two movies always make their way into the show at some point yeah, somehow. Just, we, well, yeah, we, we have something in common, man. We have something yeah. in common. I don't like any of those movies. Yeah, see, so, you know, awesome. Well, yeah, do don't you, go there. Don't go there. You two he, are fired. <laughs> August is hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't we have to be paid? Don't we have to be paid to be fired? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good true. point there. I don't pay. Uh, Ruben, I, I, can, bring that up right I can, work, there, I can work in Titanic. You know, yeah, terrifying Titanic terror. Man, it's, yeah. uh, I had, I recently rewatched that um, because my Mark. Um, has yeah, I had only seen RoboCop once in his whole life when it first came out, and he didn't like it. And I was so awestruck by this that I was like, "Dude, you he have didn't to like watch what? Me. RoboCop? RoboCop? Really? So, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, here, we right. go, here we go, Mark. Here we go, Mark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't get over the fact that he survived the, the shot. I just through the didn't head. think it was realistic enough for what he went. Oh through. well. And we watch a giant yeah. monster at all times. I don't think he would. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Yeah, we here will go. We will get here we to go. Uh, we can go. You can go back and you know check out that episode. But but I was kind of blown away by it. And they yeah. know how much I hate Titanic. But I wanted him to watch it again. So I said, look, if you will go back and watch it, I promise you, you will enjoy this movie in retrospect, especially with the the societal message in the movie. And so I was like, if you do it, I'll go back and watch Titanic. And I, I, it took me, that movie's what, two and a half hours? Or a little over two hours long? I don't know. It took Is me. Is it in a three hour movie? Yeah, yeah. It, it took me eight hours to watch it. I kept, I would go like 30 Jeez. minutes, like, oh, this is horrible. And I would turn it off. And then I'd get a little bit more. I'm like, oh, no, it was, it was torture. That, that movie's torture. Yeah. <laughs> it was my, my, it wife was good. My, my wife begs to differ. Oh yeah. oh yeah i'm gonna be respectful to you uh, that's all i can tell you <laughs> well it's not a it's, it's it not a movie for boys yeah it's not you know i can actually say yeah. i really can't hate titanic because i never ever saw it 
Oh, there you, you go. Lucky yeah. man. You see it, but you know, you can take Sledge's word on it. <laughs> you know the reason why I never saw it? Because when it came out, it was also it was playing worldwide, right? Mm-hmm. I was in Japan when it came out. I'm in Tokyo, and I'm going from I'm going from like you know uh, electronic stores to elect different electronic stores. Look, you know, looking hunting DVDs and stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm going every nice one I'm going to. I'm going to all the nice ones that have the, the nice escalator. It's not some old mom and pop shop. These are all the big, you know, the big shops, the Tower Records kind of places. You know, yeah. and I'm going from shop to shop. Every single damn shop I went to was playing the stupid Celine, Celine Dion song. <laughs> In every, oh, no. every store, torture. every <laughs> shop I went into, all I heard was her, and that was enough for me not to see the movie. Right, oh, man. Go. My night's been made. August Ragoon doesn't yeah, like the same go. movies I don't like. <laughs> the, <laughs> only thing, the only thing Titanic should be Titanosaurus. <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah. Oh, man. Awesome. Again, August, man, thank you so, so much. Um, we we Thanks definitely again, guys. greatly appreciate yeah. it. And, it was great. Uh, just to hope you are uh, blessed uh, from doing this for doing this with Thank us, you. and and uh, it means a ton. Um, Thank you very much. For, you uh, as well. You guys out there listening, uh, check out August, man. I mean, of course, August is well known for a lot of things that he does. When the John Monster movie, I mean, you did a lot of the commentary stuff for the Criterion Collection. Um, you know, you've wrote a couple books. You know, you worked with or still work with, right? Famous Monsters in Filmland. Uh, Famous Monsters is done now. They yeah, decided right. they decided to call it a day, but I just talked to yeah. the, the, the you know the, the guy who was running it the last few 10 years, 10, 12 years, Phil Kim. You know, I just talked to him uh, last week, uh, just catching up. He moved from California. He's a Northern California boy. And he when he did famous monsters and took it over, he moved down to LA because it's the film business, you know. Right. So you can you can yeah. you can make all the contacts instead of in his family, he would stay in LA for a while. And his family lived up in Santa Rosa, which is, you know, about an hour uh, north of San Francisco. Um, and uh, anyway, that's his, why am I going in all this detail? I'll give you his phone number <laughs> and his oh, social security number in a, in a couple <laughs> minutes. If you stick around. Um, no, but Phil uh, uh, Inez, now he moved to the south. So he is, uh, I believe, in Tennessee. Our you know, decided, yes. He decided to bail on yes. California. So. Hey, we came to a good wow. state. Tennessee yeah. is a great state. I love it here. Yes. I've been to 48 states in this country, and uh, I'm born and raised from Florida. Um, but Tennessee, mm-hmm. man, that's home. I mean, of all the states I've been to, uh, right. overall, just super nice people, great food, great atmosphere. I love it here. Um, right. Again, August, thank you so much, man. Thanks, man. Guys, Appreciate hopefully it. Hopefully yeah. you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, so many great things that we were told and stories that I absolutely loved through this. I don't often go back. I go back and edit these episodes and make sure and clean things up and whatnot and put the trailers in and, you know, yada, yeah, yada. Please to edit everything I said, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this, is, this will probably be the first time I go back and actually <coughs> re-listen to one of our episodes in full like a listener because it just that it was awesome. I mean, I love these stories. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah. And thank for those listening, cool. uh, definitely check August out, you know, pick up a book or check out some of the things he's done. Super, super great guy. Uh, humble enough to come, you know, 
join us yahoos which is awesome and uh check us out again next week when you guys listen to this because we will finally finally hit the movie that shall not be named that we are finally naming <laughs> and that's the sony tristar godzilla 98 film that, oh uh, god yeah we we finally have to that and we've Terror. got to, we've got a Terror. good friend justin mcclain who's going to be joining us for this because um he somehow thinks 98 Godzilla is better than Shin Godzilla, and we're going to find out why. <laughs> wow. so, yeah. yeah, that's so, going to be a good one, man. I'm stoked about it. And then, of course, join us for, at the end of the month for our special holiday episode for Christmas. We are doing Mike Doherty's Krampus. So, yes. super yes. stoked yeah. to nice. be doing that one. Nice. So, but again, guys, Fun thank movie, you all. Man. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm a such Thanks a big lot, Doherty fan. Um, but again, yeah, August, thank you so much. Guys, thank you all thank for you. listening. Um, this is Sludge and Mark. Got Ruben over here in Corpus Christi, Texas. There you go. And the man from San Francisco. Thank you, folks. Be cool to each other and respect everybody. Absolutely. You got it. Y'all have a good night. Yeah.